So here is the first of our Trident Talks um, podcasts that we've spoke about. Um, this one goes on probably about four times as long as it should have done. Um, we've got Jack Sunderland on from local boxing, amateur boxing gym, Training Cave. I've known Jack uh, a lot of time. I actually knew him uh, as a person before I actually knew him personally, if that makes sense, uh, when he was a kid, just starting off as a, as a pro boxer, actually. Um, but yeah, so Jack and I have some history, but uh, Jack's been on a bit of a, a weird and wonderful journey, as most of us have. Um, and we just thought this would be a good place to start. You know, Jack is a friend of the gym. He started off uh, part of his PT with some of the uh, owners of Trident Fitness. Um, and, you know, and went off and has followed his passion now with his amateur boxing team, of which my daughter's actually uh, part of. So this was a good place to start. Um, in all honesty, a bit of a crash test on me for, with this because we knew if we messed up, it was somebody that knew us. But it ended up being really interesting anyway. Um, and hopefully that if we're going to get any mistakes done, they'd be done in the first one. Uh, a couple of our guests over coming weeks are politicians and a couple of, uh, I'd say, relatively famous sports people. And uh, this seemed a good place to start. So hopefully you enjoy listening. Um, you know, welcome any feedback. Everything's going to be a work in progress, but Jack will be releasing this also under his Training Cave podcast. So a bit of a joint effort. Uh, happy listening. Uh, a funny one then, Jack. Um, we're sat here doing your Training Cave podcast and Trident's first podcast. So uh, you're actually our guinea pig. Um, but we thought it'd be quite good. Uh, other day we listened to one of your podcasts when you had you had Lucy on. Uh, then you did one on your own, and we thought it'd be quite a good idea to. Some, let's throw some questions your way um, which hopefully won't be too painful but I am going to warn you now I did speak to Sean Hughes the other day uh, which I haven't right. told you so, uh, <laughs> oh, <all right>. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought would be funny so over the weekend I just thought do you know what let's speak to someone and so I have exchanged a couple of messages which there's nothing too graphic because we don't want Lucy to be divorcing you but um, yeah so we'll get on to that down the line Right, okay. Well, I thought it was funny anyway. But I, think look, I should be safe because I won't, I won't with Lucy. <laughs> 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 Does she know about all your past? That's what you need to question. Um, I think so. <laughs> I think so, yeah. So, well, look, they felt too bad. But, um, your best friend did a good job of it at wedding anyway. <laughs> Do you know what? I've got to say, when my best man, uh, well, best man for me, I'd lived with him for six years and he basically went the other way and said, look, I can't tell the truth because it won't be fair. So he made a load of stuff up, every single bit of it, he made it up. Um, and my grandma were there, Tashi's grandma were there, and he said that um, I'd been to prison and everybody were looking and asking if I had. So, uh, but yeah, there's a, a separate story, everyone, for another podcast. But I guess what's unusual here is, and we'll touch on this, I've obviously known you for a number of years now, um, but let's treat this as if I don't, because, you know, there's things that I do know about you. We've spoke a lot, but there's things that I don't know about you. And I just thought, start at the beginning. So, you know, earliest memories, where you're from, where you went to school. Tell us a little bit about your early days. Um, yeah, so I, well, I was born in Leeds. I lived in, I lived in Wortley until I was, I think I was six, seven year old. Um, and I, I lived in to... Wortley till I was four. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I lived, I lived in uh, Lower Wortley, you know, just opposite Ringways. Oh, so my first house was a bit further up from Ringways. Do you remember where all American cars used to be? Yeah, yeah. It would be like American, that's where I lived, yeah. I, just up road from Ringways. But Kirkdale's. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I know exactly where it is. Mum and Dad's best friends lived on there. Yeah, that's mad, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah. There you go, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, um, lived on Cape Days. I went to Lower Wortley Primary School and then we, we, we moved to um, Driglinton. But it's on the up road, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, but me being like stubborn and probably being a big baby at the same time, I didn't want to move school. So, my mum and dad had to take me and pick me up from Wortley every day, um, even though we lived in Drig. So, but yeah, and then I went to Bruncliffe, Bruncliffe High School. So, my mum and dad. So did you stay at Did you stay at Workley until you went to high school? Then, or did you? Yeah, until I went until I went to high school. Yeah, because I had all my friends there, and I, I didn't want to leave them. But like, how I found sport and stuff was because my mum and dad then were wanting to put me into stuff where I could make friends. You know, in in the new area because I were happy where I was. I had my best mates down in Workley, but my mum and dad wanted me to. They knew that I was going to have to go to an high school up there, so they wanted me to make friends. So. Um, I'm guessing you knew no one when you went to Brunkcliffe, because Brunkcliffe's to Lower Wortley, for anyone that doesn't know, it's not exactly next door to each other, are they? No, not really. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't know many people when I went to Brunkcliffe. I only knew, so I started playing football for Gildersum, Gildersum Spurs. Um, and there were probably, I don't know, eight or nine of their players that went to Brunkcliffe, and that's all I knew when I went. They, they, they were the only people that I knew. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how I sort of started my social circle and my just before I went to high school. And it's funny because those, those lads that I met in that football team, the majority of them are still my best mates now. Yeah. I think that's the case when you have uh, sports. Though I'd say, you look at when we got wed, uh, we, we had you know, 100 guests and Tash had 50 family. I had about 10 members of family and 40 mates that I knew from rugby. Um, and that's not changed. You know, it tends to be the same, doesn't it? So yeah. I've got to ask you then, is that how you didn't end up playing rugby? Because every lad from Drig plays rugby, whether it's at school or rugby team. You know, Drig is a rugby town, isn't it? A rugby village. Yeah, it's funny you say that because that, that's why I played for Gilderson because um, they want a Drig football team for my age group. Um, for some reason, I wanted to play football. I don't even know why. I just think you probably just see something and you think, oh, I want to do that. Um, so football was what I wanted to do. And there were no Drig under eights or whatever it was at the time. So we went to Gilderson. Um, but when I went to high school then, it's funny you mentioned rugby because nearly all my mates played rugby. Yeah, yeah, uh, I can see that. Yeah, so like I had my friends at football, but then a lot of my actual school friends that I met at school were rugby lads. And the majority of them played for Drig. So I used to just go and watch the lads train or play when I want training or playing. But Did you never fancy getting stuck in then? It's strange because all lads used to say you'd be good at it, you'd be good at it because I was probably like sort of built for it really, you know. Um, but I'd, 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 I would never, I, I would happy playing football. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got to do what makes you happy, haven't you? Just, yeah. I've always thought that, that knowing you're from Drig, I didn't know about the work thing until now, but Drig, you know, I'm from Morley. Uh, we moved there when we were four, but uh, when I moved and I started playing rugby union, then I moved to rugby league. When I played rugby league, the nemesis was Drig. So Drig and Cherwell, uh, you know, you were, did your podcast last week and your mate were talking about playing for Cherwell. That was the clash. Even at like, I'm not joking, 12, 13 years old, if you were playing Drig, because you knew lads at school, you'd be winding each other up all week. And yeah. I remember three games where games didn't finish between Cherwell and Drig. And this is like as kids. And these were lads who you wanted bragging rights when you went back to school with, you know what I mean? So, yeah. But they've got a really good setup at Drig, you know. They've done really well in the village for what they do. They've got a good clubhouse and yeah. amazing teams. I think I think they're building a new clubhouse now as well. I think. Right. I mean, we've moved. We've just moved to Bayern. Um, but I think the last I heard, Drig Rugby Club will maybe getting knocked down or refurbished in some way. And I don't know if they're moving to library. I might be wrong though. 
Um, right, okay. Not more, but I, I could be wrong, but I'm sure that they're, they're renovating or they've, they've achieved something anyway. They've got like, they must have some funding or something to be able to build. I know we'll touch on it later on, but uh, they've done a really good thing with communities. <laughs> I remember Drig, like when I was a kid, getting changed out at primary school, you know, even as a 15 yeah. year old kid. So, what they've done for the community, you know, and it doesn't really matter what your sport is, they've done amazing, aren't they, really? Yeah. Yeah, they have because I, I, you'll know more than me. But I, I gather one drink like one of the top amateur clubs in area. Yeah, 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 it is. Yeah, uh, and it, the, you know, and it's grown that way every year. It's got that bit better. They've produced a lot of pros, haven't they? I mean, I know from sort of my, uh, they're a bit older than me, but these like Lee Smith and Scott Morell, yeah, they came from drink. And they're, they're about four years younger than me, uh, so yeah. they're in between our age groups. But yeah, mate, they've had some great players. Do you know what I mean? That have yeah. played pro. Uh, they've had a good team and success breeds success I think in any sport as well so yeah. if you know that you've got a good kid if you take him to Drig he's probably going to be playing in a good team there's hopefully a chance he'll get seen so I think that becomes yeah. a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy doesn't it so yeah I agree with but that. just taking a step back then what about your family uh, what, you know were your family sporty um, parents you know siblings all like that what, what got you into sport yeah it's funny because uh, none of them are sporty right yeah, my mum and dad won't spy, but my uncle, my uncle was um, apparently a good footballer. I think he played for for, for like Farsi Celtic, um, so I think he was getting paid and stuff like that. Um, that, isn't it? Yeah, and then like with 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 the fitness side, it, it were like you'll know, um, it was my granddad that got me into it. Um, I just spent a lot of time with him. Because, uh, well, we both sets of grandparents because my dad worked away all the time, and my mum, my mum was a barber, so she worked long long hours. So we. After school, would be a bit. My grandma and granddad's all childminders, and my granddad had. I, I, I love it. I think it always should be. But my, my granddad were like, I suppose back then there were no technology anyway. But I still think it'd be the same. It would either I were going to the gym with him, or we were playing some form of sport, or we were going out onto the street to play some kind of sport. So yeah, it would. It would like that. That that started my love for fitness and um, and training and physical exercise. Right. So yeah. was it just is it your granddad going to the gym, you know, pushing weights, is that sort of thing? Or was your granddad doing a particular hobby? Um he were more I think it was like a hobby for him. Um it we we went to God he, I I don't know if you'll know it, but Armless Squash Club. Do you know it? No, no. It's funny because I do speak to some blokes that are like sort of like around your age and they know of it, you know, what like you to say? <laughs> like really old. But it, it was like a, it was like a proper old school gym inside a squash club. So you go in and they were like, um, they were like, this is probably like one of my earliest memories. To be fair, they're like an old pub, um, and then you walk through. There'd be some squash courts. Go further in again, and there'd be um, an old gym, and it was like it was proper old, like the weights, everything. Um, but they did have some cardio machines. Had like a big stepper and a, and a runner and stuff like that, like a treadmill. They were like more like old school sort of bodybuilding, but it was tiny. And then you'd go upstairs and be like a snooker room or a pool room. So like sometimes on a Saturday we could be in there like most of the day. Yeah. He'd trained, we'd play squash, and then he'd he'd have a few beers with his mates and we'd be playing <laughs> snooker and pool upstairs and stuff like that, just depending on what we wanted to do. You used to have like social clubs for anything, didn't they? You know, yeah. that's missing now. Um, I used to go with my granddad to a fishing social club. And to be honest with you, just an excuse for my granddad to have a beer. You know, he loved his fishing anyway. But And he used to go, and for me, it meant I could go play pool, have some coke, a couple of bags of crisps, and, you yeah. know, my granddad would go have a couple of pints. And I look and think, you know, those social clubs don't exist anymore for various reasons. And 
I think that there's something to miss because it was good. You know, I got to meet a lot of older blokes and they always had funny stories. And I look back at those times going to a bloody fishing club with, yeah. with really fond memories. Yeah. But it's it's because like spending time in that bloody squash club, I learned to play all kinds of sports. Like squash, dominoes. Racket, <laughs> yeah, dominoes, darts. Yeah. She's got, yeah. got used to playing different things. And he, I always remember my granddad saying that. He always, he always said you should you should try and have a go at everything. Yeah. Because you don't know what you might naturally be good at and you don't know what you might really enjoy. So he said just have a go. And so we did. Just we used to just play different stuff. He must have had a lot of patience. And yeah. I'm sure he used to let me win as well. <laughs> I think uh, I think the generation of grandparents you stopped sort of trying at that point. You know, um, I look back to some of the stuff that my granddad used to do, and I think that um, you just as you get older, you've just got all time at world, haven't you? You'll just let uh, you know, and they wanting to encourage you. I think they've got less pressures than your parents have because they're not maybe working as much, so yeah. they tend to be a different breed. And I think that's why a lot of us are a lot closer to our grandparents at points than than maybe as parents because you don't realise what what's going on. You know what? Yeah, you're right there, right? You, you suppose life takes that sort of path, doesn't it? My dad was working away because he needed to earn the money. Same with my mum, she was working daft hours. My granddad, I don't know, he must have had some blagger of a job because <laughs> honestly, he never seemed to be at work, but I think he used to do a few hours on the morning, like repairing vacuums or something, I think. I think he repaired vacuums. But I think he used to get up right early, go get his jobs done, and then he'd be done. For like yeah. rum and dinner time, one o'clock or something, and that would it every day. I'm, I'm, that's what I can remember of him anyway. But I, I look at the, the, one other thing that I will say <laughs> is I look at grandparents, they're not feeding kids, and you've got this to come no. yet. But I swear to God, when hours go, our outgoings are just going to drop because try to feed Beth and Mikey and, and everything else that goes with it. They're expensive, the kids they are an expensive hobby. And if I don't know how expensive they are, and I questioned it, <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but before we go to sports X, what were you like at school? Um, I won't. I, I would just. I, I'd say I was steady away. I um, had a lot of friends. I got along with teachers. I won't really. I won't say I was like naughty or all like that. Just sort of. But I also wasn't very clever. I had no interest in learning. I wasn't that bothered. I was there probably for the social side. Um, the only subjects I was bothered in was sport. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, nah, I, I, I suppose, you know, like, yeah, people say make the most of your school days because you wish you were back there. But I don't think there's all about school where I, I think I wish I was back there. I'm not that bothered. Like, it was a time in my life, it was just a part of me becoming who I am now and gone, you know, like, it's, yeah, I, yeah. it's not something that I, I, I ever pined for going back. I think when it was time to leave, I was like, nice one, I'm going, ready for the next step now. Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same as you. And if people say it's the best days of your life. I couldn't yeah. disagree more. Um, yeah. I hated every minute of it for me. Yeah, um, it was like well, putting a blooming same uniform on every day and having, yeah, I don't know. Just, I mean, we could, this could be another podcast, but I don't always agree with the way no, things I, rules and Well, I think when this podcast goes out, there's going to be a few people disappointed because... Uh, I know in particular maybe some kids in our house wanted to know that you'd been smashing up tables and you were a little runaway and uh, you weren't always nice and so there were no smashing no, teachers up. And that, that's the funny thing because like the, some of the kids that I work with now that are like in pupil referral units and young offenders and stuff, I see even some of them that come at gym and they're like, like, why are you late? I had a detention at school and some of them it'll be the same kids having the same detentions every week. I always just, I just say to them, you must really love school. No, I hate it. 
Well, why do you want to spend more time there? Get in the Keep your head down, do your time, and get out, <laughs> and then go yeah. do what you've got to do. Because you've got to, you've got to go. You've got to. Don't you think it's funny though? You've just said do your time. That's how I saw it. I literally saw yeah. it as doing time. Um, yeah, just hated it. Uh, what I will say is though, I, I hated school. Uh, I, I, I real sort of not a bad experience, but I just hated every minute of it. But that's aside. There were two teachers that left a massive positive imprint on me. Um, and, you know, again, that's one for another day. But were there any teachers that were stand out? You know, the ones that maybe weren't just all about academics that sort of you can look back and go, it was a good bloke. Yeah, definitely. Um, in high school, um, I, I, I know it's going to be cliche, but to be honest with you, probably it were me, it were me sport teachers, me PE teachers. Um, <clears throat> I think, I think I had that feeling that they treat me a bit more like an adult. Um, I think, I mean, I was like, I was like captain at football team and stuff like that, you know. And I got put on a um, sports tours in high school. There were only four of us that got picked out of like year seven, and really it were for older kids. But we had a good, we had a good like year group, you know, for sport. So we got like sort of pushed into that, in, onto these sports tours from year seven, when really there were like year nines and tens that were on it. So we were mixing with older lads. Um, but I think the teachers showed a lot of belief in me, the, the, the PE teachers. And from leaving school, <clears throat> and when I were, when I turned professional as a boxer. Even though I'd I'd been out of school for three or four years, they came and supported me, my fights, and they came to my fights. All oh, right. Yeah, and I still speak to them a little bit now. Um, some of them have even brought their kids down to the gym. Yeah, I guess that's different, isn't it? When all of a sudden you don't call them sir, or uh, you know, yeah. I still you, call you them on a par with them. It's weird. Still want to call them sir, and it's funny because some of the stuff that I did with them in classes and how they taught me, I use it. I use some of their stuff now. Yeah, I mean, it's good at the end of the day, you know, a lot of teachers, I think, do it because they want to give something back, you know, I don't think they're all that way. Um, for me, some of them, and I, you know, mine was an old grammar school, uh, a little bit older, and there were some that were legacy that I felt were on a bit of a power trip, and it's weird that I'd call some of them sir, Yeah. the ones that warranted it, I wouldn't call the other ones sir, the ones that felt that they deserved it, do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. I, some of them wanted to just talk down to you, and I just think, who are you talking to, but... Uh, yeah, I think there's some good teachers out there that realise that maybe it's not all about academics as well. Hmm. I, I, and then, like, I know I, I mentioned sports teachers, but I suppose they're like the things that always crop, crop into your head. But I did have other, other I think I, I always remember like an English teacher that I just got along really well with, and I just thought he was ace. So I tried harder and I got good grades in English. And I think it would just because I got along with him. I don't know. I just. Well, there's someone I didn't think we'd hear today that Jack Sunderland got good grades in English. No offence, but I didn't see you as an English scholar. Well, I'm try I try my best. <laughs> I've I, have seen how Google, you I have to Google spellings now and again. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen the grammar on some of your text messages. So Yeah, well, texting, I'm not bothered. And normally I'm eight buds deep, so... <laughs> <laughs> You're not meant to be saying that. I suppose in lockdown, you can get away with that, can't you? Yeah, well, lockdown um, is... <laughs> There must have been a competitive edge, though, like you just said then, uh, year seven doing sports with year nine. That's quite daunting because, you know, a year's a big gap, isn't it, at high school, let alone two years. So th there must have been, first of all, uh, a lot of confidence in yourself, but also from teachers, but there must have also been um, a fair bit of you wanting to, you know, be, be driven, I guess, and, uh, you know, uh, prove that you can compete with kids that are older than you. 
Yeah. I think I've always been pretty competitive. I think some of my closest mates would say I'm a nightmare for it. Um, I won't say I was too, too bad, but when I was younger and my mum and dad had backed me up on this, I would always be outside practising, you know, with ball, keep-ups, booting against the wall. I didn't need somebody to be out playing with to encourage me to go out and do it. I'd just be out practising. So, and I think that's gone into everything that I've ever done. You know, like I've always just, I've always practised it and I've always spent a lot of time on my own doing stuff to be better at whatever I'm doing. Um, and like, yeah, that's, I think, you know, like when you say, when I was at class and you say, oh, you were expecting tables to be getting smashed and stuff like that. <laughs> well, I think that side of me were probably more on the sporting side. And it's funny because one of the kids that are training in the gym now, um, his dad texted me randomly the other day saying, I didn't know that my dad was our football coach. And I was like, eh, who? And he, 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 were, he, were my, he were my coach for like two years between like, I think I was like 14 and 16 when I played for Wyke. And I, 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 it must have been hormones or something, I don't know. I was I captain of that team as well. I was captain within about six weeks of being there. And the, 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 the kid's dad said to me that his dad had told him I were a nightmare on pitch and I was forever right. kicking people about and stuff like that. I don't know if it was just that period of my life, but I think I wanted to win that bad. The team were probably like a middle league team, really. So I'd get frustrated because I'd gone from Gilderson winning everything to kind of being at that team and I was taking the frustrations out physically, as I said in, in um, Without putting you on the spot, because yeah. uh, I know you're quite modest, but do you think then at that point, you've just said twice that um, teachers and coaches saw you as a bit of a leader, because you've said about being captain at school, captain when you were at Wyke. Yeah. Um, do you think that people were seeing that in you? Yeah, you know, like when I look back now, I have, I have thought about it. It, it, it. I don't always believe in things sort of being natural in people, but I think it must be something that I, that I, that I definitely have about me, because... I feel comfortable in them situations being in, I, I always have done, just like from being young, leading a team and then just barking orders. And But I think I will not say I, I would ever sort of telling them what to do. I wanted it to be a team effort um, and j just leading that. And like now with Jim, I've always found it, I've always found it easy. I've never found that side of things hard to getting in front of 20, 30 people and telling them what I want them to do. So, yeah, I think they probably did see that in me. Yeah, I think for me, in any sport, you get uh, different types of leaders and captains. You get the ones that are shouting and vocal, and I'm yeah. sure they have a place. But for me, I always respected the ones, probably the silent ones, the ones that led by their actions. Even yeah. playing amateur rugby, some of the captains that you had weren't the ones that were shouting and barking orders. They were the ones that, when your back were against wall, literally mm -hmm. were the first ones to step forward. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. you'd see people like that, and you naturally gravitate towards them, don't you? Um, you look at rugby, uh, Rhinos, you know, which is my passion really, but best captain we've ever had, Kevin Sinfield. Hated been in media, rarely spoke, but his actions on pitch did everything and everyone around him gravitated towards him. Um, but he had that compelling desire just to win. Yeah, I find it, I find it amazing, like them sort of... I, f I find reading about sort of team culture and organisational culture and stuff, I find that really interesting and like... There is so many different ways to lead, and I think that's something I've learned from my teachers and my coaches, and even my parents. You pick out the good things and you, and, and the bad things. You get rid of the bad, and you try and use the good from everybody. And that's what I've always yeah. tried to do. Uh, you mentioned there about doing your practicing and stuff, you know, on your own. Um, 
and I'm going to digress the reason I say it is, do you think that you would have still done all of that practicing on your own if you'd have had the distractions that kids nowadays have? And, and, and to put a bit of context to that, I, I, I remember getting a PlayStation like wood, do you know what I mean? But I was quite older. When I yeah. was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, I didn't have a PlayStation or a console. We had one TV, living room, books, and basically a garden. So if you didn't want to be sat in front of telly with your mum and dad, you went out and did something. You've got so many distractions, whether it's electronic or, you know, for kids. Do you think that there's less kids out there that would go and practice for three hours, kicking ball against the wall or doing kick-ups? Yeah, I do. I do think things have changed. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's not, not to say that, like, kids have changed, is it? It's just it's, times have changed. Like, like you say, technology's there now. Um, but I also do think that if somebody like wants to do something, they'll they'll do that. Um, technology's there and it will come in way. And I'm sure that schools are, are, are teaching how to use laptops and iPads. I'm sure that they, they, they use them stuff like that at school anyway. So they're used to being around it now, young people, aren't they? Yeah. I think for my age group, we were kind of stuck in the middle of it. So I can remember phones not really being about or like really rubbish ones, you know, like, well, that literally ran, do you know what I mean? And where you had Snake. Yes, well, Snake were like an adv- quite an advanced thing. <laughs> and then it were like, and then I remember like Facebook coming about, you know, like, and I think, I don't think I was, I think I was like 18 or something when I first set Facebook up or 19. Um, so we're kind of like, I think my age group's kind of like that generation in between. And I do remember like computers and stuff. And I, I, I do remember getting like obsessed with like a game, like an online game. Um, and a lot of my mates were playing it. And I think that's probably where my mum and dad, without me knowing, sort of stepped in a little bit and made sure every night I were doing some form of sport. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I think, I'd, from what I can remember, I'd probably go home and I even set it out myself, like, I'm going to play this game for an hour now because then it's training and I'm going to go training. And then when I came home from that, my mates were out playing, so I'd go, I'd go out and play with them anyway. So I kind of had that they're the other distractions to pull me away but I did I'll admit I had that computer and I had that game yeah. that I did I was addicted to and I wanted to play it but I think my parents kind of like made sure I were doing something if you know what I mean No I get that and yeah. I mean final thing I've probably got on football here is how much of your football do you think you learn from kicking ball in park with your mates where you're playing with a tennis ball or against some garages or basically yeah. wherever you can proper jumpers for goalposts compared to what you learn doing a bit of coaching one or two hours a day you know what do you think where do you learn I I reckon I probably learnt more playing out with my mates yeah Yeah, I've always thought that you just like um, yeah I do and then I think you just put it into practice when you're trained yeah there's a really good book I know you like reading from uh, you know Johan Cruyff yeah um, and that basically talks about and the Dutch way of football and it's learning on the street um, and, and I actually got one of the best academies talk about basically uh, encouraging kids to play grassroots football and to play in the parks. That's where they learn a lot of the stuff. I think it's amazing stuff like that. And I think I'd read a book not long ago that mentioned the Belgium team. And I think they, had, they must have gone through a period not long ago where I think they like got hammered by Germany or something like that. And, and I think that the, the president or whoever was in charge, I can't remember the exact story, looked into like why are we getting beat so easily you know we've got these athletic people that are in this country and we're getting beat so they went right down and stripped it down at bare bones down to like grassroots football 
And what they did, well, they changed it from like, you know, like over here, we do like seven aside and then we go to 11 aside. Yeah. I think throughout the youth stages of Belgian football, I think it's one-on-one. Right. One-on-one or like two-to-one or two-to-two, you know, like, so the yeah, force, yeah. Sort of, the force to just work in that way. And then, well, now they produce good players, don't they? And they're getting far in national competitions. And I, I think like stuff like that, like I, I, I love all like that. It's a bit like, yeah. The Brazilians, look at the Brazilians, where do they learn playing on beach yeah. and in the streets, don't they? It's same with boxing. Like, if you look at, oh, I watched like a documentary on, I think it was um, Alvarez Canelo, you know, Saul Alvarez Canelo. Yeah, yeah. And he's talking about where, he, I'm sure it with him, that it, it, his, his gym were like, where his first amateur gym was in the street and it was his brother teaching him or something like that, you know, like, and uh, find stuff like that amazing, mate. If she earned it there for me in any sport, it doesn't matter what it is, you don't need the best facilities. Um, no. I, I can't help but think whether it's a boxing gym, rugby, football, some of the best players come when they've had not the best facilities because you know that they want to work harder. Everything isn't perfect, the pitch isn't perfect, you're playing on, you know, with divots yeah. and everything else, and you just have to deal with it. Um, and that's for me where I think a lot of the best athletes, and if you look at them in any sport, They've all come through with some level of adversity and probably picking dog shit up off a pitch before they yeah, play. I know. Yeah, you hear about them in these countries that have got to walk God knows how many miles just to get to school and and then they wonder why they're winning everything at um, yeah. long distance running or whatever. And it's like because they're not doing it. And they've not done that from a running track. They've done that because that's what they did in their life, isn't it? So yeah, they have to do it. There's a really good one, by the way, just on TV and it's about Mane, the lad who plays for Liverpool. Oh, yeah. From... Uh, Senegal and it's just come out and it's really good to be honest with you when you see his pitch and how he did and it, you know he, he sends so much of his money home and he's built a hospital you know what I mean and end of days he's on probably 200 grand a week yeah he gives so much of it away he's got a really nice house but he says I've got one car I've got one watch he doesn't need everything um, and to be honest with you, it's quite humbling you know as much as I'm not a Liverpool fan and uh, I, I went to watch it with Alas he's a good bloke you can see that it, it, for him it means more about leaving an imprint in his own country and doing more with his money. So that's worth a watch as well. I think there's a lot of footballers that are like that, aren't they? I, I, I gather that Cristiano Ronaldo's quite like that, isn't he? I think he gives a lot of his... I know he comes across very yeah. vain and stuff, but I do think, from what I read and come across, I think he gives a lot of it away. Well, there's a tipping point, and you've brought some up, so I want to get on to boxing, but I'll ask it now, because you mentioned someone like Ronaldo, but there's a tipping point, isn't there, between being uberly confident, because you've got to be, to be at that elite level, and then being a big-headed bastard who nobody likes. And <laughs> for me, Ronaldo's probably, for me, is this big-headed bastard that I don't like, but you can't help but appreciate how good he is. But then, then you've got Messi, who keeps his head down and... Gets on with it, do you know what I mean? And, yeah. uh, you know, and boxers are like that, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? You've got your yeah. silent assassins, then you've got your showboaters. And, um, you know, what are your thoughts there? You know, where did you fall in that camp for? You know, what, who do you tend to gravitate towards, the show-offs or the quiet ones? I think they're not answered, but I'll ask it anyway. I gravitate towards the quiet ones. The silent assassins. Yeah. But I get, I, get, I do get why boxers put on, some of them put on the act, don't they? Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I get that. Like, the, 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 there's not many that earn good money out of boxing. It's a very small percentage. So if you're going to do that by being the bad guy, such as Floyd Mayweather, crack on, you know, like, and he's good yeah. at it. Um, yeah, definitely. But, it's the ones that do it that it don't. It just make you cringe and you think, oh, stop it, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I prefer the. I I personally prefer the ones that get their head down, and get on and graft. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, one that sticks out for me that's done well out of it has been Tony Bellew. Um, yeah. To be honest with you, you know, his career was a little bit stagnated. He called a few people out. And to be honest with you, every time he said he was going to do something, he would. Do you know what I mean? He rose to occasion. But it was a mouth that got him there. And I think he realised that being quiet wasn't necessarily going to help him out. And then, oh. but then you get people like, I don't know if you've seen him, that O'Hara Davis. Um, oh. yeah, do you know just... what I mean? Big glasses and he's trying to be something that he's not before he's even accomplished anything. And as a yeah. fan, I just can't even bear to watch him. He could be the best fighter in the country now. I just, for me, he does no for me because he's not earned the right to be mouthy. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry with the one that said something stupid about Liverpool fans dying as well. You know, I think he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's him. Completely. Because at the time, Eddie Hearn had loads of Liverpool fighters signed to his stable and it completely like, it, it went did, off. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, someone like him on a, on a bigger scale, Adrian Broner is like a perfect example. Yeah, yeah. Just tried, he tried copying Mayweather, didn't he? With cash and yeah. I uh, uh, got in with with Adrian. No, what he would have got in with sort of um, oh, absolutely smashed him. I forgot him with it, Maidana. Or um, yeah, I think he did get in with Maidana. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just absolutely obliterated him in like a few rounds. Yeah, <laughs> that was a good. Uh, that was an advertisement for. Yeah, he, he would want to throw in cash about. And I'm thinking, yeah. give it me or, you know, give it a bit. He didn't have the cash. It's not like Mayweather, who's was a hundreds and hundreds of millions. Yeah. He'd earned a couple of million or throw it cash about. Oh, you know. Ridiculous. Maybe, maybe that's the Yorkshire men in us that we won't give money away no matter what. So, But also, from another point, you don't know where he's come from, do you? No. No. So, I suppose it's like Mike Tyson. He came from nothing, didn't he? And then yeah. just as quickly lost everything that he earned because... We used to having nothing. Yeah, it's easy. He goes back to type, and his type was to have nothing. Um, yeah. So, but let, so let's get on to boxing then. So you play football. You you're at Gildersum. You said you went to White for a couple of years. Yeah. What transitioned you into boxing? How did you? Where were you first, Jim? And how did you end up there? Yeah. So, um, like I mentioned earlier, with me mum and dad, probably like when I look back now, they probably tried to make sure I were doing something every night. So. Football's like you train one night, you play one day, don't you? Um, yep. And it was filling the other nights. So I actually started doing athletics before I did boxing. So I did, I did athletic, I was doing athletics outside of football for, I did that for about two years. That were training twice a week. And then. Was that at Spember then? I, it were Pudsey. Pudsey All right. So that were at the, what's it called now, the school? Um, it's a sports, it's a sports high school, I've forgotten its name. Three Star. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But we did it there, but we got to have a go at everything. So, like, going back to what my granddad used to tell me, well, like, we could have a go at everything. But naturally, I was more long-distance running and 1,500, 800 and doing cross-countries and stuff. But we got the chance to sort of do, like, long jump and high jump. And that was when I kind of got properly introduced to a bit of strength and conditioning as well because the, the wood take us into gym and have us do, do stuff in there. Um, and then it was like... God, I think what what it now something daft happened. We we we'd found the boxing gym anyway because I wanted to get a bit stronger for football. I were like I were a centre back or centre midfield depending on how they wanted to play that game. Um, and my dad was saying you're strong, but like we could think we could get you a bit stronger. You know, like it'll help your football. Do you fancy doing some like boxing? So so yeah yeah we'll try to find a boxing gym. So we just found um Clack Eaton um and just run he run and said yeah turn up. So really, at that time, I was only going boxing now and again, literally like one night every other week or whatever. How old were you? I think I was like 14, 15. Right. 15. I reckon I was 15 when I probably first found boxing. 
So we're doing, by this point, football, athletics, boxing. Uh, my main sport was football, second with athletics. Boxing wasn't even a sport to me, really. It was just a, a way of getting me fitter and stronger for the other two. Um, and then it got to sort of, six, I got to 16, 17, and my dad, obviously then I'd left school. I, I, well, I was at, I would at sixth form then, and my dad were kind of like, you need to make a choice now because I'm driving you around everywhere, which is fair enough. When I look back, I'm like, yeah, good point. What do you want to do? You need to make a choice. Try and just pick one sport now. So I just picked boxing because I could get there on bus. Um, and, well, and after all them years of playing football, you just decided to jack it in. Yeah, because you were doing a couple of times every week. What happened? What I because I was at Wyke, so I went from Gilderson, which were like all my best mates at school. Went to Wyke, and I loved it just as much as being at Gilderson because some of the Gilderson players went there, and um, I got along with all lads just the same as what I did at Gilderson. So it were like I was playing with my mates still. Um, but then for some reason, when I got to 16, weren't work the boys who then we were playing in the Uddersfield League with, with Gilderson and, and then Wyke. So that was like Uddersfield League. Um, I was always told that the Leeds League were the best. So I said to my dad, like, is it time that I sort of like had a go at, at this Leeds League and see if I can do it? And there were rumours at work they wanted me to go and play there. Right. I, I knew like one of parents and he always talked good about me and stuff like that. So the manager said, if we can get him, get him here because we need a good centre-back. So I went to, I went to Wortley and to be honest with you, didn't enjoy it. Didn't get along with any of lads. Um, didn't get along with coach, didn't like the coach. So I completely fell out of love with football, completely fell out of love with it. Um, and that's when I just then, just that's why I cut it and went, went to, just started with boxing. So in reality, if you hadn't moved to Wortley, there's a chance you wouldn't have chose boxing? Yeah, and I'd probably still be playing football. Yeah, and, and you know, fast forward trading cave and stuff probably wouldn't have happened. So probably it's not. weird, isn't it? Sliding doors, you know. So Yeah, yeah. So, so talk to us then, you've decided that your only sport or your main sport boxing. How do you go from training once every couple of weeks to then how often were you training? How long were it to your first fight? Um, so I'd say I'd started taking it a bit more seriously from 16 and I had my first amateur fight at 17. Right. Um, and I think just out of my own sort of obsessive, the way I am, I went from literally training. So as soon as my dad said make that choice, I went. I went to go into the boxing gym as much as I possibly could. And at the time, it were like four days a week. So you trade Monday to Thursday. Um, I think it were like six to half past seven or six till seven, something like that. Um, right. I would go four days a week, and then I got into it a little bit more. And one of coaches took a bit of a shine to me, and, I, and he, he would he would in on the, every Saturday doing one to ones, and I'd start going on a Saturday then and doing. I'd just sort of train while he were taking his one-to-ones and I'd spar with him and stuff like that. And So, yeah, I probably went from zero to 100 in, like, no time, just trying to train every day. And did you then do, you know, the boxer's life, if you want to call it, when you decided that that's what you were going to do? Were you quite dedicated? Were you doing your own training as well? You know, you said you were doing that with football, but did you do that with you running on the morning and all them other things that are associated yeah. with being a boxer? I suppose I didn't really understand boxing. I'd, ne I'd not been really a fan of it. So I didn't really get it. I didn't, I didn't really understand it. As far as I was concerned, I'd always been told that boxers were the fittest humans to walk the earth. So that's why I sort of started it, because I wanted to be fittest. So I just, I didn't really know what the boxer's life was. Um, I got put in for my first fight, didn't have a clue what it was about. 
I stopped him in 40 seconds. I thought this is easy, this. The vents a bit fitting. <laughs> so I just thought, sort of, I was just in gym and just doing. But then I lost like my next three fights on trot. And I think that first fight were my downfall in early day, in, in beginning, because I just genuinely thought I could go in there, hit him, and I'd, st- and I'd stop him. So then I lost my next three. So I had a record of four fights, one, one. Um, and then that's when I started knuckling down then, and I started really putting it in. And I was training hard. I started reading more books on training and looking into stuff. Um, and then I didn't lose for, I think it was like 10 fights. I think it was like a full season. I won every fight. Um, and yeah, and that's when I realised that hard work pays off. So this is why you were still at sixth form then, mainly, yeah? Yeah, so that way, yes, yeah, sixth form up to being, I think, 19. So I only boxed amateur between, yeah, for two years, between 17 and 19, I think. Yeah. Right. And what were your amateur record then? Um, I'd, I'd 17, 112. Right, okay. And, and look, end of the day, amateur records don't necessarily mean, do they? If you look at like Lomachenko, whatever they say, he's had 300 fights amateur. Yeah. You know, I'm sure they must be counting sparring and stuff like that as fights because how the hell do you get that many amateur fights? It's bonkers, isn't it? it? Especially when we know as well the amount of pullouts that you're getting. Yeah. How did you win so many fights without getting robbed? Well, and that's the bit that I look at and I think, look, end of the day, those Russian states, they were probably building him up from an early days anyway. So, yeah. uh, you know, he was probably always going to get it because there's no amateur boxer that, or no one that's fought amateur that's not got a story about getting completely robbed. Um, no. So, and who was the hardest fight you had as an amateur then? Well, yeah, there's a bit, probably a bit of a story to this one. So, the hardest fight I had, right? So, bearing in mind, like now, like I understand everything, and I try and teach everyone, all, all this fight team, teach them about the championships, what the championships mean, what they're going in, when they're going in, stuff like that. I didn't understand that they were a boxing championship. I didn't understand that they were like an England boxing team. I don't think Great Britain would have been around then. It was just probably England, Ireland, you know, right. the individual countries. I didn't understand what any of that was. I didn't know any of the boxers that were in our gym. I didn't know how, who were fighting, what a medical card was, anything like that. Um, but the hardest fight I had was I got chucked into national championships. D- didn't know I wouldn't open national championships. I think I'd had, this was when I'd gone on my streak, so I'd like not lost for like 10 fights. So I suppose my coach probably had a bit of a point putting me in there. Um, but I got matched in first round at Nationals against some kid who'd had 50-odd fights and were boxing for England. And uh, I always remember like lining up, touching his gloves and like looking at his, he was a lot bigger than me, and touching his, and I could just see on his vest, England Boxing Association. Right, right, okay. I thought, what the fuck does that mean? So I'm swearing, what does that mean? So I've got, got back. Gone out anyway. I was boxing all right. Left up, bang, bang. I was landing, landing. And I, I thought I were winning. End up first round, boom, got a cut on my eye. Um, and it, it had to be stopped because in amateurs back then, it was a lot worse than what it is now. You just got you got stopped, you know, like so. Yeah. You want to laugh at fight then? I was like, all right, mate, you know, just chatting to that lad. How many fights? He goes, how many fights have you had? I went, oh, I've had like, I think at the time, I went, oh, I've had like 12. He went, bloody hell, you did well. And I went, all right, says, how many have you had? He went, oh, like 56. Or something like that. I'm like, all right. But it was like, from what I can remember, I was doing all right, but it seemed that I was just getting hit with punches that I wasn't seeing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it yeah. was fast and it was like he'd moved and he'd gone before you even, before you even realised where you were. Um, so, yeah, yeah to, it, it, that would pull it hardest amateur fight I had. Fair enough. And did he go on to do Do you remember who it was? Did he ever go on to? No, it was called, called Callum Cotton. 
And it's funny because on our, I think it was like our last home show, I deal a lot with, um, a, lot with a club called Sheffield Boxing Centre and their matchmaker's called Andy, Andy Manning. And I, t- I speak to him all the time on phone and stuff, like matching fights. And I don't think he ever cottoned on. And then when he saw me at home show, he went, I remember you when you were younger. And I says, all right. And he went, you boxed, um, you boxed a lad that you shouldn't have boxed. And he went, I never boxed him because I were in his corner. And he said, when I saw that we'd got you in first round, we said, oh, they'll pull out. But you didn't pull out. Um, so he said, you shouldn't have boxed him. So I know that I know for a fact I shouldn't have boxed him now because I. Yeah. I <laughs> so yeah. It is one for you then. This is a bit of a uh, when Beth were kickboxing. Obviously, spent a lot of years doing it. They used to have uh, you know an England team and a Great Britain team. And don't you remember there's some right timper outfits that they make up their own factions to make money out of it. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. the, the two main ones, if you want to call it that. But when you go to national competitions, you're not meant to wear your Great Britain suit. Yeah. Um, oh. So the idea is you fight in your club, but it, it happened. And uh, I'll never forget Beth having one. And she was only 11 and she got to the final of this European tournament, which we didn't expect her to get there. And she did. And she came out and her coach was one of the Great Britain coaches. And this girl came out in a Great Britain tracksuit. Right. And Beth's face went, imagine it, 11 years old. Yeah. It's first time to a big tournament. And she were absolutely bricking it. And the only thing that was a saving grace for, they started chanting, this girl in the ring, and who had Great Britain outfit on and a coach, and they were going, who's the champ? Who's the champ? Who's oh, the champ? Right? Well, Beth just cracked out laughing. And we cracked out laughing as well. And it, anyway, Beth pummeled her. Absolutely. Oh, right. Pummeled her. It were amazing. But I've noticed that like, that's, they used to stop that then. I think that was an isolated incident because of who her dad was. But, what, sorry? Yeah, she did. She pissed off. Then everyone went off in a grump. Sorry, I'm getting instructions shouted. But th- oh. what I've seen is, that, for me, that was to influence the judges. Because, you know, you kick boxing, you've got three judges in your corner scoring it. They knew who the girl, you know, she would already compete for Great Britain. Beth was trying to get that Great Britain shirt. By wearing that tracksuit, you were saying, look who I am. I'm already a Great Britain fighter. And I, when I first turned up to some boxing shows this last season with Beth, I saw some of the kids that had their England vests on. Do you think that they should be meant to just wear the club colours? Because at that point, they're fighting for the club. They're not fighting for England, are they? Yeah. And does that I, then influence the, co- the, the judges? Sorry, not the coaches. Mm. I don't know if judges are influenced by England. I don't know, really. From my point of view, though, like if one of our fighters got the opportunity to box for England, I'd be happy for them to wear their England vest. But if they went then to a tournament, so let's just say that Brandon boxes for England this year, then next year he goes to nationals. For me, I'd still probably want them to wear the training cave because they're fighting for you then. They're not fighting for England. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, they, 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 there's, there is a point with that. I think, I mean, a lot of ours wear the, have got training cave shorts now anyway, haven't they? So I'd yeah. be happy as long as they were wearing shorts. But to be honest with you, I'd like to think that one of them would donate their England vest to gym anyway. <laughs> yeah, get it up in corner. <laughs> no, but like, um, no, I know what you're saying though. And like, as long as they were wearing some at training cave, I'd be, I'd be happy with that. But when I look back now and from like my training and playing and stuff, I kind of wish I'd have appreciated winning, winning tournaments and stuff like that. A bit, a little bit more at times. So, 
if 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 someone gets the opportunity to box for England and they want to wear that vest and that's like the, that makes them feel good about themselves when they're fighting, then I think I've, I I I'd, I'd be happy with them to wear it. I've yeah. probably got slightly biased view because of it, but you yeah. know what I mean. I, I think there's representing your country, then there's yeah. representing your club, and the two yeah. don't mix. But that's probably just me. I, and I do also understand what you're saying about judges probably getting that sort of sway just because they're wearing they're wearing that vest as well. So they, they, they might be a part to play and that'll probably keep my eyes out a bit for that now. Yeah. I just are we really aware of it just because of what happened with Beth all them years ago. So, you know, I don't yeah. But, yeah. So, so you did obviously two years really fighting as an amateur. What happened then? Um, so the, the amateur club that I were at were kind of like, it were kind of splitting up a little bit. So all the, all the lads that were kind of like around my age, they were kind of going off. They were either turning professional or they were leaving. They were quitting. And Jim were kind of like at the time. It were kind of going. It was going down a little bit. And I, I didn't feel like the, I were getting the training that I needed. Plus, I were working as an electrician at this point, and I were working away more. And so you'd left school at this point. As yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So I were working away as a, as a spark. I were working away from home all the time. And the only real time I could train at the club was on a weekend. And obviously, it wasn't really open on a weekend. It was open Monday to Thursday. Um, and I just, one of my coaches had had a fallout with the head coach and he went off to set up his own club. Um, and he basically, I kept in touch with him because he was he one of the coaches that I worked more with rather than the head coach, if you know what I mean. I sort of worked with him more than, than the main guy. So he kept in touch with me and he just says, look, there's probably like two options for you. Either come to us or turn professional. And like, Again, my me, me education in boxing wasn't good at the time. I didn't really know. I, I'd had the, the the experience of the championships now, and then I oh, I realised. So you've only been in one championships as well. Went in two, so I got right. to I got to national semis of the developments. You know, a bit like what Harry and Brandon went in this year. Yeah, so yeah. Semis. Um, I lost by one point uh, in semi. I know because that was when it was point scoring then. I think yeah. like the final score were like blooming eight seven or something like that or whatever. But I knew I'd got beat, but it was close. Um, so yeah, well, like that option, and I, I wouldn't have gone against my old coach to another amateur gym. So I just thought, well, what's professional? You know, like I'll I'll have a look into this and just see what it's like. So that's when I got introduced to Mick Marsden because my old coach was Dave Nelson, and he his brother Robert Nelson boxed for Mick. Right, okay. So that were like kind of the link then. And I didn't want to go to another pro manager that were in the current area because there were a lot of animosity between him and my amateur coach. So I didn't want to go down that route in upsetting Keith, who was our old, who, who run Clarky, and I didn't want to upset him. So I, I started training with Mick and I were more so going to just to test myself at sparring because in my head I thought, I'll keep boxing amateur, but I know I can't train through a week with Clarky and but I'll get me sparring in with pros and I'll just keep fighting for Clark Eaton. So is this when Mick had his uh, downstairs, that ring under No, him? this must have been just after because we always trained in studio. Where he used to put the poles in floor. Yeah, yeah, poles in floor. And people think I'm lying when I'm saying stuff like this. So when I boxed amateur, it was a makeshift ring with like a bit of carpet on floor. And there were, um, it were tied to like beams that were holding the building up. So they were <laughs> the corners. Do you know what I mean? That were like the yeah, and then people think I'm lying. And then when we went pro, when I started training with pros, it were just a hard floor. It wasn't a proper ring. It were, And you know it because you've trained in the gym. Yeah. Metal poles used to go in floor and he'd put some rope on them. 
And I'm not kidding you. Like when I tell people that British champions and world champions came out of that gym, you it's don't. Bad, isn't it? Yeah, all you need is a ring, don't you? Yeah. So yeah, I started um, started sparring with Mick Slot and thought I were doing all right. To be honest with you, didn't didn't feel out of place. And Mick was like, "You can keep doing whatever you want to do, box amateur, but train with us." And then um, I was just in the amateur gym one night, and I was one at last. I was like, well, generally one at last to leave anyway. And coach would pull me to one side and says, "Oh, I need a word with you. You know, like um, I just want to check you're not leaving us." I know, like Dave's trying to get tech me lads and stuff like that. And I just said, I'm not leaving you, Keith. I says, but I'm going to be honest with you. I am training at McMahon's to keep myself ticking over, to keep myself fit. And he just sort of like blew up in his head. He just sort of like started having a bit of a go at me. And I think he took offence by it. And at that point, and I just left the gym and I got in my car and I just thought, I'm 19 years old, probably a little bit stubborn in my head. I thought, I'm not going to be told what to do. Yeah, I'm earning, I'm earning a living for myself now. I'm working. I have to work away. I can't attend the gym. So if it means me doing some training at another gym on a Friday and a Saturday and a Sunday, I'll go do that. Um, you would open the gym on a weekend. So I just thought, you know what? That's me. I never went back to Clekeaton after that. After right. that, that last conversation I had with him. So two questions that I'll ask then. When you were boxing amateur, and obviously you, you've done okay, do you know what I mean? But being quite yeah. late to it, because you'll have seen there's a lot of kids probably if that kid had been boxing and had 50 fights, he's probably been boxing since he was 10 or 11 or yeah. something like that. Did it never enter your head that you could make a living out of boxing? Or was it just a hobby? It was just a hobby. And I think even turning professional, I think, um, obviously, I knew what sort of money I could earn from it, which wasn't a lot. But I saw that as like, because I was a bit of a, a workaholic and I had a bit of a thing in my head about earning money. Um, I just saw it as another another form of income. Right, fair enough. And then just for a bit of a laugh, I've got to ask you, Go what on. were your first conversation with Mick Marsden like? Because we know sometimes getting a conversation out of Mick's like getting blood from a stone. So. Where the hell, man? It was difficult. <laughs> when, I look back, it's, it, it, when I look back, it's amazing that I stuck with him, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> and that I went with him. <laughs> uh, to, to be honest, so like you know Mick, man, he's a proper, he's a man's man, isn't he? He's a proper bloke. And like, yeah. I, I think I kind of saw Mick as a bit of a father figure, to be honest with you. Like, my, my yeah. dad's same. My dad doesn't say much. So I'm used to it. Mickey's like that, literally, he's quiet and quiet until he's at about five, six or seven. And I ain't had a beer with him in a long time. But yeah. and then, to be honest with you, he lets go then, do you know what I mean? I've oh, even I seen him dance. You <laughs> can't shut him up then. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's bad, like, you, you like ring him. Like now and again, I might just, I mean, since I've set up my gym, I've probably spoke to him three or four times. But I'll actually text him first saying, Are you available for a chat, Mick? Because I know that, like, normally you ring him, it's all right. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Mick. Yeah, you know I haven't seen you for like two years. You know, are you all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all right, Mick. I'm all right. What you need? Yeah, yeah. If you got, if you got me, if you got me ten percent. <laughs> <laughs> he's funny though, isn't he? Yeah, yeah he's, he's class man, but he's done well for himself, hasn't he? Yeah, he is. I mean, he's another one that, you know, I think uh, Mick will always say, because he was like Northern Area Champion, and I'll never forget him telling me when he'd had a beer one day, like Northern Area Champion, and one of the lads took piss and went, is that it? And he was he, he, he was really quick to say that at that time, there were more yeah. Northern Area fighters than there yeah. are now English fighters. 
So yeah. to win the Northern Area title was a really big deal back then, do you know? That, so, that was like the equivalent of the British Lonsdale belt now. Even though the yeah. Lonsdale belt, belt were about then. I mean, that would have been like winning a world title, but a British belt at the time. So, yeah, like, been, I, and whoever I speak to, like, in, in boxing game, they've always got, like, good things to say about Mick as a boxer. Definitely, they always say, well, good. Uh, he always brought the fight, do you know what I mean? He was an entertaining yeah. fighter. And I've watched videos of him. So he looked I mean, like a it, Yeah, I, there was one thing that sticks out with Mick, and I won't mention any names, but I once on holiday uh, with him, and he was having a massive, massive argument on phone with somebody that's a bit of an household name, uh, a promoter. And he was basically defending someone that he was managing at the time was Mick. And yeah. I heard that conversation and I heard the conversation and basically it was Mick sticking up for his fighter. So we know he always wanted his 10%. He certainly wanted his money's worth. Yeah. But he was arguing the toss with somebody that was definitely a, a mainstream brand, if you want to call it, calling him out um, and basically saying, this isn't right. You're not sticking back fighter here. And I mm. remember sitting back, I knew Mick were a good bloke, but listening to that argument made me see the other side of boxing that you had yeah. someone who was looking after his fighter and a promoter that basically wasn't the promoter at the time was looking after himself. I think that's one thing that I really like about Mick and it's something that I try and model myself with as well and put into my own work is that I think one reason, I know Mick's done really well and I'm sure he's got a beautiful house, got that gym and stuff and you know he's not short of holidays and got nice cars and stuff. Yeah, I think if Mick won the way he was, right, he could have probably made it even further and been like probably, look, probably one of the top promoters in the country, probably. But I think because of how Mick is, he won't going to kiss anybody's butt to get no, there. No, that's it, yeah, you know 100%. I mean? Yeah, and Mick will stick by his guns. And his, And I think from what I gathered and what I've seen of the way he was with me and the way he was with people in gym that I trained with, looked after us all. But I'm sure Sean Hughes will tell you, me and Sean have spoke plenty of times, we all probably overachieved as pros because of Mick yeah. and how we matched us and how he managed us. Like, I earned some all right money in the short time that I did it. Um, helped me buy my first house. So if Mick's, Mick's not daft, man. And no. He, he works wonders with Sean Hughes. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, it, our paths, I thought, crossed originally at Body Mania without realising it. Um, yeah. But with hindsight, they probably crossed in and around Wortley as well. But um, if you look at what he did with Noel as well, you know, and Noel, I know really well, I've been on holiday with Noel, and uh, Noel's a little bit before you, but Noel was the same, you know, he got him some really good fights and he did well out of it. Do you know what I mean? And I think if it wasn't for Mick's no nonsense approach, Noel wouldn't have got to where he was, he was going to get to. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, I agree so, with him. So jumping forward then and to open it up, you, you, you win Mick. Um, you, you, you're working away. Uh, you've obviously got a box rec. Um, yeah. So I'll ask you about your fight record. I've got to ask you about the double knockout, though. I've never <laughs> asked you about that. Um, yeah. But, you know, at the time, it's weird, but I saw that before I knew it was you, if that makes sense. Right. Were you at the, were you at the show? No, I wasn't at that show. I did go to a few shows because there were a fair few on, like, a Sunday afternoon and stuff, weren't they? Um, yeah. But I, I remember seeing that do the rounds. Probably, I don't know, more than 15 years ago, however many years. I remember it doing it rounds without realising it were you. So I'm going to ask you about the double knockout first out then. Yeah, crackers, man. So it was only my second pro fight. Um, you won your first one, didn't you? Yeah, so I won my first one against Matt Scriven, who were like, it was like a journeyman, but it was a tough journeyman. Um, one of them, I mean, he'd been in with like Billy Joe Saunders and stuff, so he'd, right. he'd been around. And it was the type that if he, want, if he thought he could beat you, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd go in to beat you. 
And you know what? Matt Scriven put me down in first round. And you know what's weird, right? When first pro fight and you get yeah, put down so, in first yeah, round. I, so I've never been put down. I don't like that as inspiring nothing. And, and even Mick will tell you, I've been hit with big shots by lads that can hit hard, big, bigger, heavier, binning with all sorts, right? Don't know what it was, where it gave a fight night, whether it were making weight or what, but I have been down a couple of times as a pro. Um, I don't know if it were lack of experience or making weight, I don't know, but I just couldn't seem to hold the shot as well as what I could in sparring. So my first pro fight... Could that yeah, have been nerves? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but I got put down in the first round, but I came back in to win every round. And like I think it was like the fourth, I nearly did him with a body shot. And like I just whipped it in and it were gone. And it, like... Looking back now, I bet if I'd have had more amateur fights, I'd have known how to sort of stop him. I'd have, and no one had really stopped Matt Scriven. And, I'd, and I, know I'd, I know I had him. I know I'd done him. So anyway, that was first fight. And then second fight, um, I were lined up to fight a guy called, I think it was Rick Bolter or something like that. I think he'd had like 20 fights. Like He'd, he'd lost more than he'd won, but he was getting about a bit. Uh, but the night before, he had to pull out. So Mick obviously must have panicked and like just had to get whoever he could. And there was another lad who would have won and won it as well, Paul Allison from Scotland. And he'd fought this Rick Bolter the week before. So Mick knew that he must be still in gym. So we'll ask him, see if he's available. So Mick rung me night before. He was like, this lad's had one, won it. Are you all right? Like, well, yeah, you know, just whatever. So I think it was the fourth round, but... It was a right fight. It was just like non-stop. I don't know if you watched full fight, but when I, I have, back, I watched it other night because uh, yeah. I remember seeing it at the time, but I've never watched full fights other than I night. ain't watching myself fight because I just think compared to fighters we've got, I'm rubbish. <laughs> so we're like warring away and that, and I thought I would edge it rounds and stuff, but um, I think like the fourth round, I got put down and I'm like thinking, oh, not again. I thought like, how can this? And then I looked over in the ring, he were down as well. <laughs> what so? We both, I kind of rushed up onto my feet because I'd not really been down properly before. I didn't really, I should have just taken 10 count, you know, and waited to just gather my senses. But I jumped straight up. Mick always said that we were like my downfall with stuff because I was too game. I'd always, like, come on, you know, I get back in. And then I just didn't recover properly and fair play to him, you know, he, 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 he ended up stopping me there. Uh, but I remember sitting down on my stool and saying to Mick, like, um, I just remember sitting down and saying, what round is it now? And Mick went, oh, it's end up fourth, Jack, it's over. You've been stopped. And I'm like, wait, on about I've been stopped. Like, I didn't know I'd been stopped. Like, so yeah, that we were quite upsetting. I was really upset by yeah, it. Yeah, I can it believe affected, it. It did affect me for a while because I think I'd sold a lot of tickets as well. All my mates were there, all my friends and family. And I think it would only fight me, mum would ever come to watch as well. Oh, geez, probably the last one then, I guess, if you've yeah, seen that as well. Was, yeah. I've got to say, on a funny note, um, it's just surprising that Mick Marsden knew what round it was himself. Because um, I know I, <laughs> I've seen him on telly. I, I, I mean, I think we know all that we're fighting on Eurosport when he went. What round is it? I ain't got a clue, and I've been last bloke at side. Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, yeah. So it was good that Mick knew what round it was. Uh, you know what round it was if you were in pub, or wouldn't you? Yeah, he yeah. would have. Uh, yeah, your yeah. round. <laughs> so, so then, at that point, you won and won. Um, yeah. You just said, I was going to ask you, what did it do to your confidence having that happen? It did not make us then after that, then um, I, I did start to struggle a little bit in sparring and did, did get put down a few times in sparring as well. Just being honest, I think psychologically it did affect me. I'd gone from like being this tough, would spar anybody and go in with anybody to like being a bit wary of a shot. Uh, 
it's an horrible feeling, and I hope that none of our, or none of ours ever have to go through that. I, I'd like to think I'll be prepared now. Um, I do think maybe sort of sports psychologists might be able to help with, with something like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, look, let's be honest, at the highest level, look what happened with Iron Mike Tyson, and I know he had a lot of stuff yeah. going on in his brain at the time, and, you know, outside of the boxing ring, but ultimately he got beat when he against Buster Douglas for all the reasons that we know about, but then look what it did. Everybody went, oh, he's just a human. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that damaged Mike Tyson's confidence as well. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, it does. It, uh, it, it definitely affected me. Um, but then we got back to some, you know, a good few wins. Yeah, because did you have four on trot then? Four wins on trot? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Had some good fights and stuff and I was enjoying it. I was enjoying my training and stuff. Um, then like, again, I was, I was working away. Like, I, was, I wasn't able to train properly as much as I wanted to take it seriously. I couldn't. Um, what did your weekly training look like as a pro fighter? Because look, the reason I say this, you, when you see a pro fighter, we see them on telly, right? So yeah. we see them, that they're in a camp and everything else. But 95% of the pro fighters in this country, that's not the real world, is it? So what were your pro fighting week look like? Um, so I could be anywhere. For example, um, Scotland or something like that. It could be doing a job in Scotland. Um, I'd, try and get, I'd try and get me running every day. So whether that meant I went on the morning before my job or after, depending. And I would try and find boxing gyms in area. So right. I've been around a lot of different boxing gyms around, around UK. Ireland, Scotland, Wales, um, down in London. I've been in loads of gyms. And that's something when I look back, I did really enjoy it. I guess it's variety seeing how different coaches do yeah. it and different training, isn't it? Yeah. So. But the thing is, you could never get yourself in a rhythm. So I'd be in a different gym every week because we, the type of jobs that we did were like little shops and stuff. So we moved on like every week, every two weeks. So I never really got any pads with anybody or any sparring I'd kind of just go and hit the bags and join in on the fitness and stuff so it's not really the way a pro should train um, I'd come home then on a Friday I'd get to mix do a bit of training there train and then generally spar Saturday Sunday right and then back to work Monday yeah back to work Monday so you have them four wins did at any point you think it could be a career or did you always think it was just extra cash alongside your work I think extra cash alongside work. Right. Yeah. And in my head, I, I, I started to learn a bit more about like the business side of the sport and stuff. And like in my head, I did consider being like an away fighter um, because I love boxing that much and I didn't want to not be involved in it. And because now I were, I were doing it like and getting paid, um, I did consider that as well. And that, that did go, in, go into my head a little bit. Because, I mean, let's be honest, so there's been some, Mick's had some good journeymen, and oh, journeymen's yeah. probably not a good word that I like, but I don't know how else she but they're essential, aren't they, for up-and-coming fighters, you know what I mean? Yeah, they're such an important part of the game, and like, they can never, you know, like, people look at some of the records and be like, oh, 120 fights, one six. <laughs> not, they don't understand it, it's like, them, them blokes are fighting every week. And the aim of the game is, because in professional boxing, if you get stopped, you lose your licence for a month. So if you're in it yeah. to earn a living, you don't want to get stopped. So you've got to just get through the fights. If you get stopped, you've got no work for a month. Yeah. Um, so this, uh, Mick had some really good ones. I remember like when I first started learning about it, we're done it, Peter Dunn. Yeah, we're going to ask I, about Dunny, yeah. Yeah, I would in changing rooms and I would just get changed. And I didn't really know, I think Dunny were retired then anyway. 
And you're like, oh, you're right, Jack, you're doing all right, aren't you? You're like, yeah, yes, I want to say, you boxed for me, didn't you? And he went, yeah, yeah, I did a bit of boxing. I went, how many fights did you have? Like, 120. <coughs> and I went, really? And he went, yeah. I said, what were your record then? I thought, bloody hell, how do I not know who you are? Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And he, he was like, oh, I won like 10. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, he must be. He must have been crap. You know what I mean? <laughs> but then that's when I started looking into it, and then I realised, and I thought, ah, that's the side to the game. Then do you know what I mean? Um, but didn't he only get stopped four times or something? So it was yeah, ridiculous, yeah. wasn't it? Hard as nails. Hard as yeah. nails. Is one of the toughest. I think he's known as one of the toughest journeymen. I think desperate done. Yeah, I remember uh, Glenn McCrory when Glenn McCrory on Sky going and doing a like an interview with Mick and Dunny. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that would be for you or not, but uh, it, it were really good because what McClory was trying to show was the importance of journeymen and good journeymen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, who knew how to give people a good fight. And just changing it slightly, I don't know if you've seen, but dependent on lockdown, Danny Mitchell um, is going to have uh, a special fight up at the gym. Uh, I think it's in for like October, November. But he's done it for MMA journeymen. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, have you seen it? And he's basically called it the always got to go. And all of these people are not allowed to have had a win. I think there's a maximum they can have as a fight. And he's got eight fighters in, and the always got to go. So somebody is going to come out of that tournament with a couple of wins. So, I think this. I always remember. Do you remember Prize Fighter on Sky? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I, I don't think they really do it now, but. Um, I always remember that there were a petition that all journeymen had set up on Facebook and they, were, they wanted a journeyman um, prize fighter. And I think it would have been brilliant. It would have probably been some of the best boxing you'd have seen. Yeah, you know, yeah. Them journeymen know the game inside out and they've got some right tricks up the sleeve. They know how to get out of trouble. And they generally can bang as well. You get a lot of them yeah. that could just knock you out if they wanted to. I mean, look, they, they, some of them have made a really good living out of it, but it's an hard living, let's be honest. And that's why, awesome. as you say, they know how to survive, don't they? So. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so just finishing off on mix then, I've got to ask you, obviously you're younger than me by, uh, I think just over 10 years, so I knew some of the fighters that were probably finishing as you were coming through, but talk to me about the Saturday morning uh, sparring sessions with like Sean and stuff, um, and, and their level of professionalism, because uh, I know they used to enjoy a beer after training on a Friday night as well, didn't they? Right, right. This, this, will, this will about just about some Mick Marsden just... <laughs> Gym up. You know what? I'm pretty confident that Mick's never going to listen to a podcast. What do you reckon? I think um, Mick, Mick just didn't teach me about boxing. <laughs> taught me about drinking as well. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think pretty much all the boxers in Mick's gym like to drink, um, apart from a couple that probably like the the powder a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'll put down there now. I've never done anything like that. But beer, beer, I definitely like my beer. Um, if you're talking about Sean Hughes, I always remember him. Probably one of the funniest memories I've got in boxing. We were, Mick used to get people coming in to spy, you know, like from different gyms. And like, I mean, back then we'd even have like Josh Warrington coming in before he were. Yeah, yeah. He's now. So we'd have like gyms from Leeds and stuff or... Generally, North East, Mick had a lot of contacts in North East, so you get a lot like of kids. Stewie Hall and that, didn't he? Yeah, so you'd have a lot of kids coming from like Darlington and um, Middlesbrough. There were some good gyms from Middlesbrough that used to come down. And they'd just come on like a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, and this particular occasion, Sean Hughes um, walked in and he, 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 was still, he was still pissed from the night before. You could tell, <laughs> <laughs> you could tell that Mick... Uh, 
Mick could see it in him straight away because Sean just had this like bright red face when they walked in. He could walk in a straight line. And, uh, <laughs> and Mick was like, you name's Sean? Yeah, 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 I'm sound. <laughs> you could tell. You could tell he won. And I think, um, from what I can remember, I think Mick said, just go home, Sean. <laughs> just go home. <laughs> yeah, we had... We had some good times. We used to like. We did a lot. We did a lot of a lot of sparring. It was it was good. We had a good crack. Sean did say, to be fair, look, we we had a couple of uh, messages on Instagram, but he said uh, it probably wasn't a good environment for a young pro to look at the older pros at that point and think this is how you live your professional life. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. All that. So we'd be out. There were many times I'd be out on on jogs with Sean, and we'd we'd just be talking about when we were next off out into waking and stuff. <laughs> yeah. you know what as a boxer yeah amazing yeah absolutely brilliant because he similar to me he didn't have many amateur fights um start i think he started quite late and mick did a really good did a good job with sean as well and i think there's a story like mick i don't know if sean will appreciate this but mick told me that when sean first went in mick's gym he couldn't do a press up uh he had no just no strength you know like no physical strength from what I've been told by Mick and Sean, and then for him to have, I think he had like 30 odd amateur fights, or like one half lost half. I can't remember, did he actually, did he box with British title? I know he beat. Yeah, I think British title, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the British title, and he, he, yeah, just, he fought abroad, fought in France and stuff, and yeah. I think he had a really good career, did Sean? And I always remember, I think, might have been out jogging or could have been over a beer, to be fair, when he was saying, I just don't think I did as good as what I could, or I don't think I was very good. And I was like, I had to say to him, Sean, like, but yeah, like, I, I, I look up to you. I looked up to you. I think you were an, a brilliant pro. He might not have been up there on Sky earning millions, but he, he, he played a big part in British boxing at the time. Yeah, he did. And look, at the end of the day, I, I always say that, and I say this to kids, even if you don't make it at rugby or whatever. You yeah. can have a career in sport, even if it's not at an elite level. And Sean's off now with his own gym, a little bit like yeah. himself, isn't he? So, you know, he's, he's obviously done well out of it. And um, and then final thing I'll ask you about that is uh, Christmas dues. Because Sean, you know, they they were famous in the, just as a gym goer at Body Mania at the time. But everybody loved the Christmas dues. But yeah. uh, we also know that Mick Marsden didn't like putting his hand in his pocket either, did he? So, I, I don't think he ever bought me a drink. <laughs> no, no, me. So... Oh. Yeah, and I felt like all we did were following round all night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why, because he didn't know what day it was. Was it you that told me about the time when uh, everyone went to go out in Christmas jumpers and he did, and, and nobody oh, did man, apart uh, from him? He probably wouldn't appreciate me talking about this, but yeah, we went out in. We went to go out in Christmas jumpers. So, true to form, like me and Sean turned up in his Christmas jumpers, um, and I think little Terry did, little Terry Broadbent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a few others did. You know, some at blokes, you'll probably go skiing with some of these. Um, everyone turned up in them. Mick didn't. But he was trying to sort of like take the mickey out of me and Sean. Like, haha, you've got your Christmas jumper and I haven't got mine. Um, in fact, I can't remember what it was the way around. Or did he turn up? I think he might have actually turned up in it. Um, and me and Sean had ours on, but nobody else did. I think, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So he did turn up with his on, right? And there were me and Sean with ours on and, and Terry with his on. But no one else in Jim will come for Christmas do had theirs on. So Mick started feeling a bit embarrassed. Um, I think he were like, I think he liked his fashion and his clothes and stuff. So yeah, yeah. 
he actually went home and got changed. He left the pub to go home and get changed. So he left me and Sean and Terry hanging. <laughs> Was that in Breakfoot Border? Was that what? Was that down at Breakfoot Border at the bottom end of town? It was... Um, no, I think we'd met in Air and Hounds in, in Rotha. Because uh, I remember being on, in Breakfoot Border on one at nights out, that's all at Christmas jumpers. So I sort of remember a similar story and I don't know if it happened again, but... Yeah, he could see his ass couldn't he, Mick, let's be honest. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember someone spilling a drink on one of his shows once and he, he was <laughs> mad about it. I was like, bloody hell, Mick. I won it on So, to wrap up then, you've had four fights. You're then looking at BoxRec, you finished with a loss and a draw. Um, yeah. How did those fights go and what made you not fight against? What were that back in 2013? Yeah, so the, the, one, the, the second one that I got beat were for a, a title, so it was... A t- 10-round fight for an area title against Matthew Mallin over in Barnsley. Um, did all right out of that. I, did, I got paid all right out of that, I thought. Um, just don't think I was good enough. That's probably when I first realised that I wasn't good enough. Um, I got stopped in fourth round with a really bad cut on me. On me, I had like nine stitches. So that well, that one learnt my lesson. In between that and the next fight, which was a draw, I failed a brain scan. So I had right. a bit of time out. I think I had about it was over a year's worth of just wondering what was going on. I had to have I had a, you meant to have an MRI scan every year to get your yep. pro license. So I mean that cost like three hundred quid. It's a lot of money when you're coming out with about seven hundred pound a fight after your deductions. So um, I then had to have like a CT scan, so a more detailed scan, which costs like eight hundred and fifty. So by this point, like I'd sort of spent that much money on it, I wasn't really going to be earning out of this season. So, past the CT scan, I think the MRI just probably had like, from what they told me, they said it was like a shadow on it. So, probably just from some hard sparring that I'd had a few days before. Um, took my CT scan, everything was fine. They said you can have your license. Um, and at this point, this is when I was really considering just thinking I'll just just box when I master box now, you know, rather than boxing at home and selling tickets. Um, working away more than what I was. So I just thought, I'll keep myself fit. Um, whatever Mick comes up with, I'll do it. I know Mick will look after me, won't chuck me in with anyone really good. So we'll just do that. Um, I suppose Mick probably didn't, didn't really know my point of view on that. But one, one day he just rung me, I was working away in Ireland, I was working nights. I think it was like a Wednesday night. So I've got you a fight um, this Friday in Peterborough if you want it. He says, yeah, all right. I said, I'm a ticket, so I need to sell it. You'd have to sell any. So I thought, all right, yes, I'll... How much? Oh, 1,200 quid. Yeah, nice one. Thought 1,200 quid's not bad. Went down, boxed, thought I won. The fight's on YouTube. Um, and got a draw. Uh, so I think when you fight someone on their own show sold all the tickets and get a draw, I think it's a case for... Yeah. The, even, the guy even said to me after, like, you know, you won that. Yeah. So that was when I just sort of realised and I thought, I've been through all this with my brain scans, that sort of little scare, which does worry you. Because you are getting punched in the head. Um, yep. And then just probably the realisation of the fight before that I probably weren't good enough. Um, work not allowing me to really do the training that I could do. And did I really want to be a journeyman fighting in a way corner? So I just didn't officially ever really retire, but I just think me and Mick both knew that. Time to call it a draw. Yeah, 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 yeah. So just. So just on that then, if you could offer you now you've said you know when you went to the gym in Clarky and you didn't really understand the politics I guess of amateur boxing how it works yeah. if you could offer yourself any advice both as a young amateur fighter and as a somebody who's 
had aspirations to be a pro. What would you say to yourself now? Um, I'd say get as much experience in the amateur game as possible. And if you have a feeling about the club that you're at and, and if you don't have a good feeling about your coach, there's a lot of other gyms and coaches out there. Don't be afraid to make the move. Look after yourself because it's only you that's in the ring. And um, if you are going to turn pro, do it on the basis that you've got the amount, uh, plenty of experience behind you in the amateur game. And do your research. And as, as then someone, if, as a young pro, you've just touched on it there, half, but he's selling tickets, isn't it? So, yeah, so. What, you know, if you had, you've got some really good young lads, and, and I'll use an example, but let's say Harry decided in a couple yeah. of years to want to go pro, what would you say to him? I'd, 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 first, I'd say to him, I'd explain the business side of it, I'd, and then I'd, I'd say, um, genuinely, how many people do you think would come and pay to watch you? at say 35, 40 pound a ticket um, and I'd wait for the answer and then I'd explain to them what they need to do around just training. It's not about, I'm just getting your fights now, it'd be a matter of like, you've got to sell yourself. So they'd have to push themselves out there. And I like, what one thing I've, I've always thought about with the gym and the training cave is what I've always tried to do is make all our fighters known to the community and the public. So I like to think that a lot of people know who Beth is, um, know who Brandon is, you know what I mean? Like, because if they do want to turn pro one day, they've got a bit of a base there already, a bit of a fan base. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and so uh, I would want to try and help them all um, also promote themselves and, and teach them how to do that. Which I guess goes back full circle at the start. We were talking about when you get the show-offs and stuff. How much yeah. of that is for show and how much of it is, you know, because they're an arsehole. How much of it is to sell tickets? It's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got I mean, to sell tickets. If you want it, if you want if you want them wins as a pro and you want that bit of a easier life in terms of results um on your record, then you've got to be able to sell a lot of tickets. Yeah. And then if not, then you you could go down the fifty fifty route where you are in the away corner, but you're trying to win. Problem with that is you get wins and you stop getting work, you stop getting calls to fight. Um or you go the full way and you become a journeyman, which is no shame in that, but you're just doing it for a living. As opposed to being, and then getting a legit shot at world titles. And I think one of the best yeah. examples I've seen of this and going off was uh, Steffi Bull's uh, last Terry Harper. Yeah. Um, and obviously she's 23 years old, you know, 10 fights, gets a world title shot. And I, I don't do a lot on Twitter, but did you see it kick off yesterday with the American girl who was in line for the belt as well? No, which, which girl's that? So there's a, I forget her name, but if you look at Terry Harper yesterday, there's an American girl who was ranked number three, I think. All right. Um, basically said to Terry Harper, you got bought a world title. Now, when you actually look at it, Terry Harper's got a really big following. All her village came to watch her. Yeah. She sells tickets. So Eddie Earns put money in. The girl who was the world champ at the time, there was a purse bid out, you know, to actually put a fight on. And basically, Eddie Earns paid more to make, get Terry Harper this shot. And ultimately, she's gone out and won it. But whoever was ranked number one or number two, this American girls, proper calling Terry Harper, uh, Terry Harper out and getting really, really bad. It was, they were, you know, all over. Steffi Bull was involved and stuff yesterday, saying you've had a world title bought for you. And to be fair to Terry Harper, she says, I didn't have a world title bought for me, but my promoter was able to put more money to buy yeah. that opportunity. And that goes back to what you said. She's got a good following and someone as big as Eddie Earn has basically put his money where his mouth is to get her that shot. 
and 23 years old, 10 fights, and she's now a world champion. So the world's at her feet, but that's come because she's got a good following. Yeah. And, you know, Terry Harper, she, she, I'm sure she was like national champion and stuff like that. So she's gone, yeah, through, yeah, she will, yeah. gone through that process. Like, not everyone's sellable. And she's sellable, isn't she? She's people like to people like her. She gets herself out in community. She's helping out in a local amateur gym. She's showing her face everywhere. As far as I'm concerned, she's more than earned it. Like yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, she fought for that world title, Eddie, and seen something in her. He's willing to invest some money into her. She's gone out and she's won it. at twenty three year old, and that American, like, I feel sorry for her, but she'll get a shot. Yeah. Well, and now she'll probably get it on a big stage as well because people have bought into Terry Harper. She'll yeah. probably earn more money this time round fighting for the world title. But if you get a chance, have a look at it. Because when I was reading the thread, there's a lot of politics involved in that thread. Do you know what I mean? But what's that girl doing now? She's tweeting her way to a world title. Yeah, I know. I know. So it's like, they're all playing the yeah. same game, aren't they? And she'd do the same thing if somebody give her a world title, she'd take it. Of course she would. And, and that, that's the politics. And that's what I was sort of getting to, that there's a, there's a hidden part in boxing that, it's not just necessarily about being the best. You've got to fight your way to get given that chance to be the best. Yeah. And hope the judges don't go against you. And hope that you, you're on weight. And hope that you don't feel ill. Because everything's got to align at the right oh, time, yeah. hasn't it, to make it to the top. I do think there's always a little bit of luck involved as well, isn't there? Yeah. Everything's, everything's got to be lined, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, fast forwarding, because uh, I realise we've digressed a lot. We might make four podcasts out of this, mate. So. I know. I did tell you, didn't I? I said I could go on forever, mate. It is a good job we ain't got a beer, because it could have gone on a lot longer. Um, but, so fast forward then. So, you finished fighting at 23. You're working away. I then came to see you, uh, basically, as a PT at Joe's. Yeah. Or, you know, a trainee PT. What happened, and what was the gap there? And what then made you decide to go down the PT route? Because, ultimately, that then led you on to where you are now. So... Uh, yeah, I'll try and be because I can't. In between, in between stopping boxing and doing that, then to meeting you, um, I, I just I tried doing different sports. Um, so obviously I was still working. I was still doing what I was doing as an electrician, working away and stuff like that. Um, but then I started um, doing runs and stuff. So I, I did like um, I did marathons. I did three marathons. Then I started doing triathlons. I did a couple of triathlons. Um, and then I did an ultra. I did a, a, a 67 mile stupid bloody run thing. So I just tried to like, I think that's always been my competitive side. And that was my way of keeping active because it's hard. Because once you, I think some of what I've realized is, and only up until the last sort of year or two, is I don't like um, sort of just being on my own. I like, I'm used to being around the team or in a, in a group being coached. So, I attempted to do other things, but running marathons and triathlons and stuff didn't do it for me. Tried being in the gym, um, doing weights and stuff, that didn't do it for me. Um, but anyway, we'll talk about that in a bit. So then finding Joe, so what I decided to do, what I realised then, I was 25 or something like that, 25. I'd sort of look at some, of, not, no offence, but I'd look at some of the blokes I were working away with who were kind of in the 40s and 50s. And I'd look at them on a night, after like they've had five or six pints, whereas I'd been in gym after work, and I'd look at them, I just think I don't want to be like you when I'm your age. Like no offense to them, like that's that's how they want to live, and they've earned really good money out of what they're doing, and they've got good lives. But I thought that ain't me. Um, I miss training. I miss the gym. So I started studying while I was working away. I signed up to a personal training course. Just started doing it online, 
one where you could go take your exams in when you were ready, um, submit stuff online and your coursework and stuff. So I just started like learning in my rooms and stuff like that. Uh, passed, got my qualification. In fact, just before I got my qualification, I thought I'm going to now try and find a gym that I can actually work from. And that's when I just started Googling local gyms. Went round a few, which are quite well known. They were charging like ridiculous rent. And then I came across Georgie's in Morley and I thought, it's like, like a little private gym. It re reminds me a little bit of the gym that I trained in with my granddad in the beginning, you know, like, but on a bigger scale, like that sort of old school, old school equipment and hard work sort of thing. Um, so I, that's what I sort of gathered on, on the internet, what I sort of picked up on. on I, I think I, it, I, I got in touch with Joe through Twitter, I think. Um, and then we just, he just arranged for me to go down and see him. And I just remember going in and he were training somebody and Joe's like, not obviously knowing him a lot better now and you'll know this is big on so such attention to detail when he's teaching an exercise. And I were amazed how we were teaching somebody just to do a squat. And I'd never like sort of been taught out like that before, um, all the training that I'd had. And I thought, oh, I, don't, I want to be here, I want to learn from him. Um, and the deal with like the rent and stuff were like, perfect for me because I couldn't be there full time I just paid per session that I were there and it just worked for me and then I probably bumped into you then yeah uh, having banter on a morning um, yeah because yeah. Uh, you would you used to tra teach a lady that did a lot of running didn't you I can't remember the lady's name um, yeah, yeah that's it yeah. yeah yeah so yeah she did a lot of running I think she will in fact she was probably one of the first people I started training she might have been the second person that I started yeah. training. I think she trained with me for about four years in total. She doesn't train with me now because I don't really do the water ones. Um, but because and she moved house, but yeah, yeah, Julie. I mean, funnily lot. enough, that that there was what I'd class as some good times because I used to go in on the morning and train, and you'd get the usual suspects in. So if you were in and so on, but it, weirdly, what you've just said then, that's probably isn't about me, but that's where I've struggled a little bit because I'm I played team sports all my life, and that last ten years, I've just drifted a little bit. Um, and I think for me it was having that camaraderie around you that yeah. they were some of my happiest days in uh, Georgie's when on a morning everyone had finished and there'd be that half hour of madness where everyone was just taking piss out of each other yeah. and having a laugh and that was probably closest I'd seen in a long time to rugby changing room mentality if you yeah. know what I mean I um, think it works you know like I think um, I mean say if I'm wrong but like I think my, me and Joe I think we had a laugh you know in the gym and we could joke and stuff like that. And like, I know we could both get serious as well. Um, but I like to think I brought that side out of Joe as well. Like we, we did used to have a laugh and I did used to enjoy it. And like, then when he asked me then to sort of start doing the class on a Sunday for, for in return free rent, I was like, yeah, too right. Because the way I saw that was, I didn't have to pay rent. Plus I get the, that, that interaction with people and that, that Sunday session, I know you used to come at home and Beth used to, that was when I sort of first got training with Beth as well. Um, we used to get like, I mean, 15, 20 people Up, in some of them. Upstairs in that yeah, room, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that was like a buzz. I used to love them Sunday morning sessions. But do you know what, and I'll say something now, that was when uh, I had in my head that Beth might go down the route of boxing. Uh, kickboxing were amazing for her, but um, it was one of those Sunday sessions where you two were at the top of the steps because it was busy. And yeah. um I was watching you, and look, I, I, I'm a boxing fan. Uh, I don't know the little things, do you know what I mean? I'm just a guy watching it on telly. But I watched you, bear in mind, she was kickboxing at the time, and you were doing little things with her. And I thought in my head then, 
if she goes down the route of boxing, I'd let Jack coach her. And at the yeah. time, you didn't have the gym, so I made it was about one-to-ones. And that was yeah. the start of her then when she was kickboxing and she went to a couple of the Great Britain tournaments when you were working with her then on a striking. Yeah. So it was actually on the back of the Rocky workout on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Consciously, I had it in my head that if she went down that route, I was going to bring her and have to have a word with you without realising at the time that fast forward a couple of years, you were going to have your own gym. Yeah, but that, 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 that's a lesson for any young person that's starting out if they're sort of self-employed or anything. There's nothing wrong with sort of like putting yourself in positions where you might have to do something for free. You don't know where it could lead you. And like the, the relationship I've like got with you now, George, Emma, Beth, Beth's one of our fighters now. And that's where I met her doing them classes. Um, yeah. Wow, old was she have been then? 12? 11? Was she been 12? 11, I think. Because she went to a European tournament uh, last year, a junior school. So she'd have been 11, yeah. Isn't so, that crazy? Like now, like, but then we had a national final of a month. I know. Uh, I mean, it's mad. You think when I brought her up, it was in the build-up to uh, a big world tournament in Ireland and it was mad. Um, and to be honest with you, she won't, like we've seen it, she bombed out in the first round. But I, I believe that she learned so much more from that because she'd gone for about two years beating everybody in all these tournaments um, and the invincibility that she had. But when she went to that tournament, she went up and she had to fight like girls from two and three years older. And it were over two rounds and she was something like 7-1 down after the first round. And she ended up losing 8-7 because oh. the, the nerves grabbed hold of her. And she had to sit there then. She lost on the Tuesday and we didn't come home until Saturday. And it was all booked in the hotel. So she had to watch like teammates fight and she was brilliant. She supported them. But you said something that losing can help you. Mm. Better gone the other way. She had this invincibility. And when she lost, I think it killed her. But ultimately, it sort of stripped it back and it made her realise a loss isn't the end of the world. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And uh, obviously, she had a couple of losses at start with a boxing. I, I, I won't bother because I know that when she felt invincible as a kickboxer, ultimately she did lose. It took her a long time to come back from that. And I think everyone should experience a loss because I think that's how you deal with it. Mm-hmm. From best point of view, it's been quite a tough start for her because she was in such an awkward position. Because of her experience in kickboxing, I mean, I spoke to her a few times, but I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't put her in against someone who had not had any experience. No, it wouldn't have been fair either. No, but this is good for other people to listen to. The reason why Beth's lost a few fights is because she's been chucked in at the deep end from the start. But I think now it's proving to be working because it's going to kick me till end of time, that bloody national final. But she was up against a girl there who boxes for England, over double fights at Beth's had. And I thought Beth put head and shoulders better than her skill-wise. Just pull it occasionally. Um, and it just shows what sort of level of a fighter that she is. And there's nothing wrong with losing some fights. No, I agree. 100% yeah. agree. So, flicking back then. So, you're doing sessions uh, at Joe's, PTs, yeah. you know, but still working. How did Training Cave come about? Now, I listened to your podcast with Lucy last night, so I know a little bit about the building and uh, yeah. some of that stuff. But to anyone else listening, how did you go from doing part-time PT, full-time Sparky, to then going, sod it, I'll do this? Yeah, right. So... I um I were I were working I, I went self-employed as a sparky then so I, when I started working at Joe's I went completely self-employed so I want I've gone from a proper cushy job had a van good money everything um being stubborn and thinking I don't want to do that anymore um saved up a bit of money though I want daft with it I did my course and I saved up some money just so I had a few grand like to one side bought me a Transit van. 
thought I could do everything out of this. I can do my building work and I can still do my PT and stuff like that. Works for everything. Um, so started working with my mate. Andy was actually one of the directors at Training Care now and he's a, he's a he, he property developer and joiner. He does a bit of everything, does Andy. So I just started working with him. I was doing electrics for him, but also doing all the labouring. So I was on site all the time with him, learning stuff. Absolutely loved it. Really good. It probably for about a year or two, I did that with Andy. Really good on some good jobs. Um, I do a couple of hours PT on the morning. Some days go work a full day on the site. Then I started, then some nights I'd be in Georgie's doing one-to-ones again. But then I also got going to KBW Amateur Club, Amateur Boxing Club. Yep. I did that because I met one of the coaches in Georgie's, uh, Rash, Rash Khan. Is yeah, yeah, no, Rash, yeah. I started helping out at KBW one night a week. The other nights I was in Georgie's. Um, and then through the day I was building. So I got to the stage then, I think it went, that went on for about 18 months maybe. Um, I got my level one coaching with while I was at KBW and I got my level two because in my head I thought one day I want to set up my own gym. To have your own amateur gym under England boxing rules, you've got to be a level two coach or you've got to have a level two coach present. Um, so I did that. KBW were absolutely fine with me all the way. They all they knew what I wanted to do. They backed me and helped me. Um, and what I started to do before, this was long before training came, I moved to Brain and Brown, which were over at Road in Morley. I started doing some sessions there because I used to go training there sometimes um, with Joe Barris and I just got talking to owner. And I thought, like, looking around the place, it was probably more suited to the sort of one-to-one training that I could offer because... I'd come from a fight background. I was learning to be a boxing coach at KBW and I thought this, this would be my way of earning a, a more of a full-time living from training if I could break away from the from um, the building. Yep. So I just had to make the choice of going to Brain and Brown full-time and it wasn't, it wasn't great. I felt a bit, it was a bit upsetting really, you know, because I, I made such good friends with Joe and Gemma. Um, it was quite a tough, a tough conversation to have, but I knew I needed to do it for myself like to push forward and I knew that in the long run which is what I said to Joe and Gemma at the time I said this is just a stepping stone because I'm going to set up my own gym eventually anyway well Joe which, had always said to me that you yeah. was and he said Jack's a lone wolf that was the word he used I think I've yeah. seen before so you know when it happened I don't I know for a fact there was no animosity yeah Joe had always known that that's the route you were going to go down yeah, and actually I had a conversation with Joe over there by message and stuff, and I said to him, I'm a, I am a product of Joe G's. Like the way I coach and the way I do things, the way I look into stuff and how I research stuff is because of the grounding that I got at his place off of him, Liam and Gemma, because they are obsessed with learning. So I, I, yeah. I, 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 got, I, I picked up on that. Uh, but yeah, then, again, saved up some money, uh, put it to one side, bit of unluckiness and luckiness depending on which way you look at it um my grandma passed away and she left me a little bit of money inheritance there were enough to buy a boxing ring a couple of bags egg guards and gloves and to put a deposit down on a unit so as much as my missus probably expected a big fancy holiday i got me sent a little a little unit in burstall um <laughs> that became the training cave so I used, a, I used, I admittedly, I used the money that my grandma left me to set up the gym. So I've got to ask them, because I've been listening to this last night. Did you sign the lease before you told Lucy that you'd signed the lease? Is that what I read? Yeah, I signed the lease before I told anybody. 
you know, I, I look to my dad for everything, like legally, everything. It's like, you know, with a contract, I run it by my dad. But um, I think when I first left Sparking to go personal training, the look on my mum and dad's face said it all. And I think if I'd have turned up and said, I'm going to spend my grandma's money on this unit, I think that they'd just kicked me out of house on the spot, do you know what I mean? I just said, I'm not talking to you anymore. So I just thought, look, if I just go do it, they can't really argue with it. So I went ahead and, and what, did it. And what did they say when you told them? I don't and think I mean, Lucy in this as well. I don't think they really knew what to say. Lu- Lu- Lucy kind of knew what was going to happen anyway. She, 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 she thought she were backing me. She was saying, she were, if I was, she were probably saying, maybe you don't need to do it this quickly. Like, you can wait a little bit, and, you know, and have a look into stuff a bit more. But I just went for it. I, I can imagine you're a similar kind of kind of character. But yeah, I um, bought cars when our lass has been away yeah. for the weekend and she's come oh, back. I'll, go, I'll just go do it. Um, yeah. And then it was just a matter of like, I just kind of told my mum and dad, I just said, this is what I'm doing. And I explained to them how I knew it, how, how I knew it could work and that, that I, I were confident it was going to work. I told my dad, I just says, look, dad, I'll just sign contract for a year. I've only signed it for a year. If we don't think it's working, I'll go back um, to being an electrician. So that would deal. Um, so you, yeah, but you never were going to go back, were you? So, and I never will. Yeah. No, and I say that to kids: don't go back. If you, if you leave no. for a reason, you know what I mean. And uh, uh, you so. do. But yeah, so when you started it, and look, how long has it been going? Is it three and a bit years now? It's just. Oh God, I think it might be. It'll just. It'll just be three years. I think I'll have had it. I signed a lease, I think it was like the 1st of April, and I opened it the first week in May. So when it comes to the first week in May, that'll be like the anniversary for the gym being open for three years. There'll be no big parties this year, because uh, we'll, we'll still be in lockdown, I'm sure. So, oh, I did, I know. But yeah, so look, when you had this vision of this unit, and for any of you who haven't listened, Jack did a podcast last night with Lucy, or maybe the night before, talking about the state of it. We know what the gym was like. But did you have any idea that it'd be, you'd be where you are now? No, no. I don't think I knew really what I was doing. I don't think I really understood what I was doing. <laughs> so I set, up a, I set up a limited company on Company's House. I think it cost me like 20 quid, 25 quid. Training Cave Limited, perfect. So I just set that up, told my accountant what I was doing. It was the same accountant that had helped me do my books when I was just self-employed, sole trader, building and personal training. So she was just laughing, yeah, crack on Jack, do what you want. So I just sort of went about it, got it going. I thought in my head, I could do my personal training through day and I'll have a timetable on a night for us, for us boxing and fitness classes. And, and then I just kind of run with it. Um, my, my original goal, my aim was to just build a boxing team and get the boxers out fighting and getting with England boxing and get, get out at competitions and stuff like that. The gym were busy enough from day one, really, to pay bills, and I had enough personal training to earn myself a living. And then, um, after about two years, got to like last summer, just realised that I probably won't be able to do this for the rest of my life. So I had another little moment where, like I did when I was doing the building, when I was looking at the other blokes across the table from me, thinking, I don't want to be doing this when I'm 40, 50. And I think I realised again that I didn't want to be doing that when I was 40, 50. So I needed to change something. So... You can't keep getting up at five in the morning to do personal training and working at the gym until half past nine at night and expect to have a normal life. So, but I can't, I can't do this forever. Um, 
and then we'd switch to become like a not-for-profit organization which is probably the best thing I've, I've, I've ever done um, and the doors are it's open for the work that we're doing as community and within Kirklees and Burstall like it's just brilliant. I absolutely love it. And I've got a genuine, the buzz I had when I first opened the gym don't even compare to the buzz that I have now. Every day, I like, I proper can't wait to just get going because there's always summit, there's an email coming through, a phone call, or there's something to apply for, or there's somebody I'm working with, or, and it's just, it's, it's like a constant adrenaline rush. It's really, I love it. I guess what you've done there is you've created something yourself because you've just gone ahead and done something. You know, you didn't consult yeah. your wife to be or whatever it was. Was she wife at the time? No. You wouldn't have been married then, would you? Um, and you've just gone ahead and done it. And yet other doors and other avenues open. Sometimes a lot to be said for just putting two feet in and going for it. Isn't yeah, yeah. I, I'm a big believer in that. And I, I think I advise young people and stuff like that sometimes. Make sure you've got a bit of a cushion there if you need to fall back, but don't be afraid of taking chances. But do you, that's going back to school. That's one of the things that they don't say at school. Do you know what I mean? That you can't yeah. plan everything out and... I think that uh, when I've done so much stuff with work, my mum and dad are a little bit like, oh, why can't you just be happy with this? It's not about being happy. It's just about sometimes going for something that's a little bit different, isn't it? Yeah, and why shouldn't you? You know, like the, the good thing about mine and Lucy's relationship is she's very much like me. She she was on a well-paid job when we first met, but she always had a passion for makeup and she'd done a makeup course when she was younger. And it was something that she was just so passionate about. She's got, got a shelf there that's just full of books on makeup. Um, I didn't even know there could be so many books on makeup, you know what I mean? But she loves it and that's just what she likes to do. And when she mentioned to me that she was thinking about going full time, I said to her, go for it. Like why not? You don't know where it's gonna lead to, what it's gonna lead to. So I guess what you've got at the moment is you've got two strings to your bow, you've got your young fighters at some of which you've had from day one, and yeah. then you've got your charitable work. Um, yeah. what are your plans for being able to keep those two plates spinning because they could, you know both require a lot of time and a lot of dedication don't they yeah see that's tough you see because i've noticed other organizations boxing clubs do it and they've had a drop in the boxing um, performances because of it and what's i i, I prefer, prepared myself in that i might have to have the conversation with parents at some point but i don't think i do now um that maybe i would have had to say to them end of this season maybe Sorry, we didn't compete as much as last season, but I've had a lot on. And if it hadn't been for what I've been doing, there probably won't be a gym existing in a couple of years, or if at all. So it's kind of like everyone's got to, got to be willing to let some go for the longevity of the gym. But luckily, um, just because of how I want to work and we've got such good volunteer coaches around us, I think as boxing teams got even better during all this, we might not have competed as much. Um, as what we have done in previous seasons. Um, but I think we've got better in the gym and as performances have shown that. So I've managed to sort of do the business side of things and juggle the boxing. I probably haven't been out boxing as much as what I've liked to. Um, that has had to take a bit of a hit. But I know I've had to do it. It's just so just on that, which leads into, um, you know, and I'm going to not necessarily talk about fighters today because, you could talk about them all and it's not yeah. fair, but as a, as a parent, which ultimately I'm, I think you've got a good stable of fighters because they're all competing at a good level. And uh, one of the things that sat in my mind was after the last home show um, that you did up at Trident, not Brain and Brawn, Lucy, if you listen to this, because uh, <laughs> you read bad books, yeah. um, was how you matched them. Because 
you know, I know a lot of home shows, people are matched generally to get wins. I think you had more losses than you had wins. And I don't mean that as a dig. That shows you that you can put in them at the right level. What's yeah. the point in going for a walkover? Do you know what I mean? You, you matched them all. And I remember thinking, and funnily enough, two of my mates that came to watch it said, they've all been good fights. Every one of them was a good fight. So yeah. it shows that they were matched evenly. And even if they didn't win, they'll come away and learn something from it, won't they? Yeah. Do you know what? I'm always... We always get commented on how, how, um, how well matched as fights are on our, our shows. I even get like some officials that message me after on social media saying it's a pleasure doing your shows and the matches are brilliant. Like they're not, they're never one sided. And I've got proof like on my phone from messages of, of, of that. And I, it's something that I'm, that I'm big on because I see our shows, that's our product. People are paying to come and watch and like they do pay a bit more than what they do on a lot of other amateur shows, but that's because of the effort that I put into it and the money that I spend on it, making it like that. Um, I make sure all I, I don't want... You know when I box for Clegg Keaton, we nearly always won on our own shows. Always. And I don't want our lot to think that they've got a right to a win. Well, for one, I don't want them to think they've got a right to even box on a show in the beginning just because they're a training gear fighter. Then they haven't got a right to win. And they're going to have it tough. And I want them to be... When, the, when we've got home shows lined up over, in, in future over years to come... I want them training hard and hard and hard because they know they've got an home show coming up. And I don't want them thinking they're going to get an easy ride because they're not. Well, funnily enough, and it's not to call anyone out because I went to watch a show up at uh, Tom just before Christmas, uh, yeah. a lad that we know were fighting, and it was with a boxing club from Morley. Bear in mind, I was there just watching boxing. Mate, some of the results, some of them were legit, do you know what I mean? But the home show won everyone apart from one of them. And that were on a split. And it one of these, the kid got beaten around the ring it was one of the most one-sided victories I've seen and that was split and some of the others and I was there I wasn't just watching one last and to be fair he didn't win and probably didn't deserve to win and I just thought to myself this is what makes boxing bad because for me not only are you taking a win away from the lad that deserves it you're building the other lad up to think that he's probably better than he is yeah what's it um, teaching them what's it teaching them do you know what I mean the, nope. the, the, the way I the way I see us and the way I want us to be in future, I want us to be like you know like we're, we're going to be competing at an high level. I know we are in years to come. I just know we are. And what's the point in throwing our team in easy fights on home shows or in any other club show when they're going to be at national championships? And you're going to be exactly. fighting. You know, like look at Beth. She boxed, probably boxed everybody already in like her first yeah. ten fights. Like who, who she got to be afraid of now? No, and that's a bit, and she had one of them all, obviously. Uh, yeah. But I, I think she'll come out of it well, mate. I'm, you know, talking but about that. Been split decisions, haven't they? And it's like Brandon, he got beat in, in, in um, novices. Bree bots the lad that eventually went on to win it. Brandon yeah. lost a split, and, uh, and it was probably a couple of punches in it. That were like the final. So now Brandon probably feels a little bit invincible because he thinks, well, <laughs> one of, you know, best lads in country, and I nearly beat him. And he'll uh, certainly let us know about that as well, won't he? Yeah, yeah, sure he will do. So, just a couple of things then. Uh, I've got to ask you on the back of it last night. Um, is Lucy going to become a boxer or a ring girl? Mm. She likes to think that she might be a, a bit of a boxer, you know. She like, she's good with her technique. She'd make, <laughs> a, good, she'd make a good ring girl, though. <laughs> <laughs> that was all we had to pick up last night. <laughs> Uh, I've been putting ticket prices up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever you want to do at home, Jack's down to you, mate. So, well, yeah. yeah. You've been locked down for a while, pal. So. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, you might be having Lucy come on board to help you out as Jim grows. But just a little bit about coaches. Um, in the time I've known you, 
with the training curve, you've obviously had various coaches come in, you know, who all give up the time. And, you know, I, I'm thankful for that because some of that's been with best as well. Do you know what I mean? On Sundays and Saturdays and yeah. what have you. But just a bit of background work, coaches come from and how have you managed to rope these guys in? I know. It's amazing, really, when you think about it. But I think, I think amateur boxing coaches are a special breed on their own. I suppose any sports coaches are. Yeah, um, to, give, to give your time up for nothing for other people's kids is like a big to be I think it must must be a big thing I don't have my own kids yet but um, the first ones were Steve and Chris um, Chris Sinison were already training in his gym anyway and I always respect Chris's opinions on everything because he's been around fight sports forever um, we've had so many good conversations me and Chris and I always look to him to ask him his advice on stuff and I just had a random message one day on Facebook from Steve, Steve Arty, and um, just saying I used to box for Keith Tate and I used to help, then I helped him out as a coach. Can, I've been out at game for a while, but I want something to do. Can I come down and help you? Um, I, I hear you've got some good things going on. So you were like his first one. So I straight away I messaged Chris Ineson saying, have you heard of this guy called Steve? What's he like? You know, will he be all right coming in gym? And he said... Yeah, he says, but if he's coaching, I want to coach as well. You know, I'd like to give some back to the sport. So, you got two foot price of one. Yeah, so I like sound. So, Chris and Steve did their level one coaching courses. They started down at gym, took a lot of weight off my shoulders. Um, and then we had uh, Rich, Big Rich, Big, Big Rich Atkinson. He sort of floated into gym pretty much around the same time as Chris and Steve. But more so just to be a, um, to, to train, just to keep fit. He was an ex-professional with Rich. And he just wanted to keep him sent fit. Uh, but then we didn't see him for a little bit. Um, there were... He was still there, Chris. He cut off a little bit then on my phone. Yeah, yeah, me, me. Yeah, yeah, so uh, Rich then were training at our place. And um, there were rumours that he was sort of like setting up. Not that he was. That there were going to be another gym getting set up in, in, in Burstall. So obviously this for my first experience of like sort of maybe having like a competitor, you know, like in area. And I was like, yeah. I'll be honest, I was a bit worried. I thought, what, what's this going to do to me then? What's this going to do to Jim? You know, I've, I've set it up with good intentions and someone's going to come and stomp all over it. But then them rumours kind of went and I think whoever it was that we're trying to set up couldn't, didn't realise how hard it was to actually do and they couldn't achieve yeah. it. You know, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't materialise, it didn't come of it. But then... One day, um, I had a guy that I know called John Talent, who's who's coached other gyms in, in Batley, and eventually, it eventually came to us for a little bit. He just messaged me one day saying, "Big Rich wants to come down to the gym and coach, but he feels like he'd be stepping on Steve and, and, and Chris's toes." I says, "Don't be daft." I says, "We need, we all need, you know, we, we all need an hand." I says, "Not everybody can be in gym every night, you know, like so. Any extra pair of hands are better." So Rich came down and he said, I'll be honest with you, Jack, I were, I'd done my coaching course through this gym that we're meant to set up in Bristol. He said, the only reason why I didn't come to you guys at first place, for that reason, I didn't want to step on your toes. I bloody hell, Rich, you know, like, you don't ever have to worry, you know, like, just, just should have just told me, like, I can't bother, just come down. Yeah, yeah. So he started and like, yeah, Rich, Chris, Steve, all get along, we've all come from Keith Tate, we've all come through that, that same sort of system, so we've all got a similar way of coaching. And then Graham Thomas, were same as Chris Ineson, have been training in our gym a long time. He's got a big background more so in MMA. Um, you'll know like Neil Hall from yeah, yeah. our place. Um, he used to train a lot with Neil, so and he knows like Danny Mitchell and stuff. 
but he just he was training at our place and then he just said I won't mind um becoming a coach can I start helping you out so yeah Graham came on board then he's done his level one now so we've got Graham um Graham Steve Chris and Rich that are all qualified Unfortunately, Steve's not not with us as much now. We, he's he's working too much, so he's had to sort of knock it on. Ed, I do believe he'll come back one day. I said that door's always open, but yeah, we're very lucky that we've got a, a team of volunteers that that help us out. I can't help but think that when Steve's not there doing training, that there might be some at lads be the sigh of relief. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and lasses because he's he brutal with us. Oh God, <laughs> piggybacking round car park for hours on end and. <laughs> Something went old school, yeah. But look, the reason I bring them up is obviously I've had the parents' experience of all of them, yeah. you know what I mean? And uh, mate, they're all good lads, and uh, you can see that they've all bought into what you try to do. That's for me more than just boxing, it's a bit of a community yeah. feeling. Uh, so it, it's good that you've got those lads on board because there is only so many hours in a day. And you know, considering you didn't have a gym three years ago, to have all these lads fighting and competing at different levels. Yeah. Look at last year, you had uh, you know, Beth in semi final, final at nationals. Harry yeah. was in the Yorkshire Cup all on the same day. You'd really struggle to do that without him, wouldn't you? So, yeah, I mean, so we went to when we, we went we went with Beth, didn't we? Up to Bertley, and yeah. then Harry was in the Yorkshire final on the same day, and Rich went with Harry, and then because we realised Beth would be on earlier, I didn't tell Lucy, but I thought I could make I could make both fights here, so we did Bertley, and then went down to Hunslet Club in Leeds and saw Harry at Yorkshire final, and he wouldn't had a good fight, had a good fight against a good kid. Uh, yeah, but yeah, if it weren't for Rich, we couldn't have had two people in the same place. Now, fair shout, mate. I mean, you've done really well at coaches are there, and I do think they've all got a similar thought process. So, I think yeah. your biggest problem as a, an observer is going to be letting go of some of the stuff and letting other people start to do it for you. Because yeah. you, you are, you know, when it's your baby, it's really hard to let other people come in and do stuff, and it's yeah. that trust in it. Yeah, it is that was a big thing for me, letting go. Um, and, and and still is. I've only just started to... It would hard for me to let go on the boxing side of things in the beginning and accept that Steve and Chris were going to do things their way. Do you know what I mean? They're going to do stuff similar to me, but they, everyone's got their own way of doing things and I don't know everything. So I've learned from Steve and Chris and then Rich came on board and I've learned a lot from Rich and Graham. I've learned so much from Graham on like, he's brought in like so many different sides to, to the Training Caves game. He probably doesn't give himself enough credit for um, yeah. And you've got to be open-minded, and I think that goes back to your leadership, doesn't it? And the type of probably captain I was when I was younger, I like to think I'm like that now, and I'm willing to take on board advice from other people and accept that I don't know everything. Yeah, I think that's the hardest bit when it's yours. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I don't always necessarily like to take advice there and then. I don't. Afterwards, I, I sit at home, and I, I might have been quite a little bit offside sometimes, so I don't get it. Yeah, and then after the event, I sit and go, "No, oh, it's not so bad actually." Uh, and I can be a bit of a, a dickhead when it comes to I, checking I, yeah. stuff. I'm saying, um, sometimes you suggest stuff to me, Chris. I'll be honest, and I look at my phone and I think, "Bloody hell, Chris!" Do you know what I mean? But then it gets in my head, and then I think a couple of days later, I'm like, "That's a good idea. That I'm going to do that." <laughs> 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 yeah, you can tell. Mm, yeah, let me think about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then and then I do it, and then I pass it off as my idea. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, that's what it is. That's how it should go. So, I mean, look, we, we're, we're probably two hours in, so we might have to. Oh, really? Down, but yeah, uh, give or take. So, um, right. But and I had a couple of other questions, so I'll fire through these. But 
Do you think boxing's misrepresented at times as thuggish? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I, 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 I see it from the other side because I'm constantly trying to promote the, the good that it does for people mentally and physically because yep. of like the profit stuff that we're doing now, the applications I have to make and the meetings I have to go to. I have to put on such a, like a, a show for boxing and like what it does for your community and like what it does for people. Um, I just think if something bad happens in boxing, it gets dramatised, you know, like in, in media and stuff and one recent example, I don't know if you watched it on ITV, but the White Collar, the the, the programme on White Collar Boxing. And and as much as I'm not a I big fan it. of White yeah, have a look at it. You'll be able to get it on um, Catch Up or Demand, whatever it is. As much as I'm not a fan of White Collar Boxing and Licensed Boxing, that programme just highlighted the worst the worst parts about it. And and I think that's what happens in general with boxing. They, they kind of... It just takes, like, one, one thing to happen. Um, yeah. One of the best quotes what's ever been said to me is people latch on to sort of like the bad thing, but what about all the good that it's done? Oh, 100%. All, yeah. all the lives that, that boxing saved, you know, like and the amount of people that it sent on the right path. Well, I look at that no different with any martial art or anything. You know, uh, I've got to say, some of the best lads I've known, I've always had boxers around me. When I was playing rugby, some of the fittest and nicest lads were boxers, tie boxers, uh, and you had idiots like us windmilling away. But yeah. you had lads who could probably fight that were probably more controlled. Do you know what I mean? They were the ones that you could push further before they actually snapped. Yeah. Um, but I think that whether it's martial arts or boxing, uh, you know, my granddad always used to say they should have it in schools. Now, not everyone has to become a boxer, but I, I believe that. It'd just be a level of fitness and it'd be something for everyone to get involved in. And to be honest with you, ultimately, probably a little bit of self-defence as well. Um, yeah. So, but, you know, I think for me, Lads in particular, teenage lads, and I've got one running around house here that probably could do with it. That I think sometimes they need an outlet. Now, that outlet they might not be boxing, but uh, I think boxing's a good one because there's something therapeutic about letting that aggression out when you hit something. Yeah. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of uh, youth clubs and boys clubs and you know uh, kids' clubs that have disappeared now. And, and ultimately, I can see that's the way you're trying to go with Training Cave. And I think for the community in Bristol, that would be really, really good. Yeah. Um, I think... I think the, the government made a massive mistake by cutting the the um, the youth funding, you know, the, the funding for youth groups, which has been the problem. Like, it's kind of like taking a bit of a circle. Now people are realising that all this antisocial behaviour and is a result of youth clubs not being around. Um, we've just got one back in Bristol. Um, youth clubs just started up one, one night a week and it's proven successful. I think they're, they're attracting 20, 30 kids. Um, one night a week and I think it just shows that it's needed and I do believe it's needed in schools I'm doing my best to push ourselves in there and we do have a school that comes to us actually um, fruit day at the moment like a pupil referral unit um, and they're the sort of kids that really do need a sport like boxing that need that sort of mentor through the coach and they need to be in that environment where they know they can't like um, they, 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 they can't just do what they want yeah, 100%. So, I mean, look, I think it's fair shout and everyone will back you up that what you try to do in community is ace, mate. And, you know, as a mate and as a parent involved in it, I, I think it's great, you know what I mean? And I've said to you so much stuff we want to do with Trident, um, the gym, that uh, not quite down the same route, but with what we've got on Danny's side of things, you know, with the MMA. And yeah. even just being in a gym, do you know what I mean? And actually having that environment and, you know, trying to encourage, it, it was going really well for us before we, we had this uh, pandemic, but, same you know, here. parents... Yeah. Parents coming in and training with the kids, you know what I mean? 
why can't you train with your kids and pass on your knowledge? And uh, I've just got to make sure that when Joe tells them what they're doing wrong, he does it in the nicest possible way. So, <laughs> yeah. But a couple of quick questions then as we finish off. What pisses you off in general? Oh, I don't know, actually. Uh, I suppose, uh, in boxing, incompetent judges. Yep. Yeah, they're probably out watching. Um, what about outside of boxing? What, outside what of boxing. Uh, God, I don't know. What, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know, really. I don't know if I'm that easily offended. Yeah. Do you know what mine is with people who don't indicate? <laughs> it, can, <laughs> it, can, it, can, it can ruin a day. I can be like, how hard is it to go? Do you know what I mean? Or, so, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so, something that would really upset me. I don't. I don't like any any form of cruelty towards animals. Even if even if it means even if I just see somebody slap the dog on ass or something like that, <laughs> that that pisses me off. That that I don't like it. Yeah. yeah I don't you're like a big... it. Uh, and here's one then's a contentious one. What pisses you off about Lucy? What's her habit? What's one of her habits that you just... Mm. I have to be careful here because she's downstairs and I think she can hear me. <laughs> 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 yeah, and I'm not giving you an example because our lass is sat just out there, so... You can't. Don't, don't do that. I don't want Tasha after me. Mm. I don't know. I, I, I you've bottled it. You've bottled it. bottled it. I've bottled it. I have. Right, fair, all right. So, what's your most annoying habit? My of, of myself. Yeah. Uh, I think it's. I think I, I, I think Lucy mentioned it in the podcast. I think it's um, it's letting work rule me and take over my life. Yep. And I, I think when you look back and you think about the conversation that we've had, everything I've done, I've always been in. It's kind of like been my soul. Whatever it is I've chosen to do has been my soul focus, and I, I think I've, I've probably always had that in me, and I, and, I, and I struggle to switch that off. Fair enough. There might be a level of ADHD in there, Jack. I, you know, I've thought about it. Miss, I have thought that. Yeah, I think there could be something there. I've read a couple of books over the last couple of years, and uh, yeah. I think if it had been there when I was a kid, I'd have certainly fallen into a bracket there, if there's such a thing, do you know what I mean? Some kind of like obsessive disorder or something, I don't know. Yeah, there's something yeah. It does me head in. So, uh, final two questions. If there was a boxer, if you said, if you were talking to some lads or girls in gym, you know what I mean? I keep saying lads. And, uh, what boxer would you tell them to study? I think I'd always, I'd always try and choose someone who had a similar style to them or someone someone that did something good that I was trying to teach them to do. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I think as like a perfect model, as like a pro, on like the world stage, my favourite fighter is like Lomachenko. And I know that like if somebody were watching him, it could get so confusing because he, he just does so many amazing things. Um, on a British level, but I won't tell him to model the cells on his personality I, 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 in the professionals I'd probably be telling them about Billy Joe Saunders because he's but not on his not on his personality though but on his yeah, not on his social media either uh, or his social media and in the amateurs in the Great Britain team I always tell them I tell them to watch Peter McGrail yeah he's good or, or the McCormack brothers yeah yeah because I think they're I think they're excellent 
Yeah, and definitely. GB level, when they're at that top-class amateur level, that's before they get into like the bad habits of being a pro. And I think it's the purest that they are, the, 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 of their talent. I, I genuinely believe that. I think that if you can watch the GB team, anyone on the GB team, in terms of amateur boxing, it's just like pure class watching them. Like they do everything yeah. correct and the technique and everything is just perfect. The way that they've I, listen, I listened to a podcast the other week and they were actually talking about um, Audley Harrison, who clearly didn't have a great professional career. Yeah. But they talked about he, the reason they've got the Sheffield Elite Institute of Sport is because of Audley. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? He won that medal, then you had a mere card, and then yeah. next one, you know, and each year it's gone on. But yeah. I saw a fight in the, I think it was the European Championships, and I'll be honest with you, it was the first girl I've watched that I thought, and, the, and her opponent boxed like a, a boy. Do you know what? Sometimes there is a difference, and I don't mean any disrespect. No, but, I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, but I think she's called Laura, or Lauren Price. She's a Welsh girl. All right. And um, she's in the GB team. And to be honest with you, when you see some of Peter McGrail's, the, the boxing same if they're around each other all the time really? they're obviously going to be doing it and she looks yeah. really really good a Welsh girl yeah and she's in Olympic team trying to qualify for this one so uh, I'll look out for her I've heard of her I'll look out for her no she's good and then final one I've got uh, and I know you like your books you four or five books in and it's nice to see you've gone past Rosie and Jim um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, uh, what book would you recommend um, that some you know your, your team would should read. Oh, for the team, I I tell them to read uh, Ross for for the training side of things. I tell them to read Ross Mike's books. He's Katie Taylor's trainer. Um, oh yeah, and he fueled my passion for exercise and learning about um, training and stuff. I think I bought his book when I was fifteen. His first book. He's got a couple of books. Still got them. Um, I've lent one to Brandon at the moment, actually, just for him to like learn before he starts teaching in in, in gym on his own. Uh, that'd give every that'd give a young person a good grounding because it's a lot of it's body weight. Yeah, he does all body weight stuff, doesn't he? he yeah. Finds a way to train with whatever, so he's a good lad. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, I think that's why Katie Taylor found him out as well. Wasn't it? She likes to go away and disappear out yeah. of nowhere, and so. From what I've read about her, I think she followed him online, probably a bit like myself, you know, like, and then when it came to that choice of turning professional, I think she seeked him and, and got in touch with him. From what I've picked up on, I think I think it was in a documentary on Netflix, I'm sure she yeah, talked. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, which is ideal. That's probably how a pro should train, just shut themselves off and go away. Yeah, she likes to go to the other side of the world. It's a bit wilderness out there, isn't it? But it's how yeah. she likes it, so. Yeah, but when it comes to books, I've got loads. Yeah, yeah. So I've just started on SAS ones, you know, like I read Ab Middleton's before, but I don't know if you watch any of them SAS who does. Yeah, I do, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've just got, I've got that Foxes and one of the other lads, and so I, I start reading them today. So. Yeah, I've read them. I've read uh, Billingham's book. That's the one, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've read him and Ab Middleton's um, from start to finish. Ollie's and the other one, I think I started them and just got a bit like bored. Like, no offence, like, I just, I think probably at the time, I just want taking it in. But Ant Middleton's and Mark Billingham's are really good. And then, yeah, all to do with SAS or Navy SEALs. I like, I like reading about. No, definitely. I'll tell you another good one that I started, uh, just for record, it's actually a woman fighter. But you remember Jane Crouch, that first woman? Yeah, yeah. Um, so her book came out end of last year and I downloaded it and I started reading it last night, actually. And uh, some of the stuff that she went through, like being invited at the British Boxing Border Control dinner, she wasn't allowed in the dinner. 
Oh God, she had right. to sit outside and basically journalists just completely snubbing her. You know what I mean? And uh, been put on live, been put on live TV, and basically uh, t- to be embarrassed as a bit of a thug. And it's in my lifetime because I remember it happening. And to be honest with you, it's 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 a really interesting book. And uh, you know, we look at probably Katie Taylor as the pioneer female boxer. Yeah. But before that, it was probably yeah. Jane Crouch, and, and it, 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 yeah. the forewords by Ricky Atten actually. He talks a lot about it, and he's got a couple of bits in books, so it's interesting. Yeah, one I've just done. You might like Michael Bisping. Really good book. I read that. it. I read Obviously, it. Uh, with, yeah, it's, yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah. It's good. No, it is good. So, but yeah. But Jack, we took up loads of your time, and uh, like I say, we might have to have a bit of breakfast into the two, but. Uh, it's been good. I said there were not too bad in there anyway, but it were it was funny listening to Sean Hughes because when I spoke to him and I said, you know, any stories, he went, it was just Saturday mornings. He went, I'd love to be able to tell you about more of them. I could hardly remember. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've been pushed, punched around too much. Yeah. We, just, we used to call it Tear Up Saturdays. That's what you called it, Tear Up Saturday, yeah. Yeah, just smash each other to bits and then uh, just laugh about it after. <laughs> but yeah, quality. But look, cheers to this, Jack. Obviously, you'll put it on yours. This is going to be Trident's first uh, podcast as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I might have to use this as a case study for the lady that I mentioned earlier that I'm not allowed to uh, say yet. But if we get her on an interview, I think they want to hear one. So I'm not quite sure how this one will go down, but it'll be funny if no else. I think, yeah, I think it'll be... Um, that, that, that interview that you'll do with her, I think, could be good. And I think it'll springboard what you plan on doing. I, I hope so. I'm hoping it opens doors, to be honest, a little bit down the route that you're doing, you know what I mean, in the community and stuff. So, yeah. But yeah. Look, cheers for that, Jack. I'll stop the recording now, but yeah. catch you later, mate. Cheers, Chris. So hopefully he stayed with us until the end. As I say, uh, we knew that was a bit longer than uh, they normally would be. The aim is to keep them to about 30, 45, 30 minutes, 45 minutes maximum. Uh, but there was a lot to talk about with Jack and, you know, he's done a number of podcasts himself and this was a, a good opportunity for him to be sat on the other side of the, the interviewer's table, if you want to call it that. But uh, So, you know, probably good for both of us to get that out of the way. Um, I'll put a post on over the next couple of hours, uh, next couple of days as to who our guest is next week. Uh, there'll be a process of getting to know some of the staff and, as I said, there's people from outside of the gym as well. Hopefully we enjoyed that. As I say, we'll take any feedback. Please drop us a message and, uh, yeah, please listen to the next one. Click on subscribe and we'll catch you soon.